call this meeting of the Eureka City Council order. Pam, can we have a roll call, please? Mayor Yeager. Here. Councilmember Brady. Here. Councilmember Atkins. Here. Councilmember Bergell. Here. Councilmember Cherubellini. Here. Councilmember Arroyo. Here. Okay, please rise and join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. Okay, we didn't have a closed session tonight other than an evaluation of the city manager, so uh, we'll um, move to mayor's announcements. And under mayor's announcements, we have a proclamation tonight for gardening week, and uh, council member Sherberlini will be reading that. Yes, it's my pleasure. Would um, our representatives from the Sequoia Gardening Club come to the podium, please? Thank you very much for coming. And it's my honor to read uh, into the minutes the City of Eureka Proclamation in recognition of National Garden Week, June 7th through the 13th, 2015. <clears throat> Whereas gardeners have a passion for nurturing the beauty and resources of the earth through the planting of seeds, the care of all plants, and the riches of their efforts, and whereas gardeners seek to add beauty, splendor, fragrance, and nutrition to our lives through the growing of herbs, vegetables, foliage, and flowers. And whereas gardeners work to preserve our country's traditional spirit of independence and initiative through innovation and hard work. And whereas gardeners advocate for the importance of all creatures, large and small, that share our world and their roles in a balanced and productive ecology. And whereas gardening furnishes a challenging and productive activity for our citizens, for those just learning as well as those having years of experience. And whereas gardening promotes a healthy lifestyle that lasts a lifetime, helps reduce stress from other areas of our life, teaches that rewards can come from diligent efforts, and whereas gardening enables members of garden clubs across the nation and the world to make a world of difference in the communities where they reside and work. Now, therefore, I, Melinda Cherubellini, on behalf of Mayor Frank Yeager and the rest of the City Council, do hereby proclaim the week of June 7th through the 13th, 2015, as National Garden Week. And I just want to say thank you for all the work that you do and recognizing the beautiful gardens and um, the people who care for them in our community. Um, I was a proud recipient of one of those recognitions, so I'm very uh, grateful to that. And um, if you'd like to say a few words, M Mr. and Mrs. Goodwin, correct? Thank you very much. On behalf of the Eureka Sequoia Garden Club, I wanted to let you know that it is an honor to work with the organization. We have been working on a landscape design project for the last three years. As you've noticed in the newspaper, once a month there's a grouping of pictures uh, of homes in Eureka that are all on one street. That's the times that we have walked and driven the 39 blocks to then come up with 10 winners for the Garden Jewel Certificates. We'd like to thank the Time Standard for printing these pictures 
and making it easy for people in the community to drive around and see uh, what wonderful things we do have to offer. And now I'd like to introduce Chuck Goodwin, who's our district director of our Humboldt District of California Garden Clubs. Thank you, Mayor and Council. As the district director of Humboldt District California Garden Clubs, it's my pleasure to extend thanks to you from the 22,000 plus members of the California Garden Club statewide as we celebrate National Garden Week, not only with, with uh, flowers, but food for our family, friends, neighbors, and, and members of the community. Thank you very much for your pro proclamation today. Well, thank you. Let's give them a great hand for all the work they do. And I do. And I do want to acknowledge that two council people have received our awards. Okay, we'll move to council reports. Is there a council member that uh, has a report tonight? Marion, go ahead. Thank you. Um, in the, uh, on the 22nd, we had a meeting of the uh, Redwood Empire Division of the California League of Cities that was held in Ferndale. They were the host city, and uh, they did a great job of welcoming all of us. Um, city manager was there, and, um, and, and of course, Linda is our legislative um, uh, delegate. And um, they grappled with quite a number of um, legal uh, um, bills from Sacramento uh, where the league gives feedback. And maybe she'll share some of that. But um, And then we also have our regular business meeting where we, uh, um, we had a presentation. And in this case, um, it was uh, what, what they were calling, the speakers were calling the Land Bridge Initiative, which is the idea of seeing what we can do to bring valley uh, commerce over to our port and to see if we can uh, create some sort of an uh, economic boost through doing that. And, um, and then we had a lovely dinner at uh, the Victorian Inn, which was uh, really great. And um, that was um, our quarterly meeting we will having next quarterly meeting will be in Trinidad, which is a first. And uh, so that'll be exciting to let tr tr have Trinidad host us. Thank you. I actually don't have much of a report tonight because I don't have much of a voice, but I will report at our next meeting on the legislative issues. Okay. Uh, we'll move then to public comment period. This is a time for members of the public who wish to be heard on matters that do not appear on the agenda. And pursuant to City Council Resolution 2011-22, City Council policy is to limit each speaker to three minutes. Uh, such time allotment 
or portion thereof shall not be transferred to other speakers. The public will be allowed to speak concurrently with the calling of an agenda item following the staff presentation of that item. And pursuant to the Brown Act, the City Council cannot take action on any item that does not appear on the agenda. So is there anyone in the audience who would like to address the Council at this time? Trent, step up. Hello again. Just want to say again, thank you so much for what you do. You guys, you ladies and gentlemen are in my prayers and I hope the city is praying for you as well. Um, I was thinking about, I've been an employer, I've been a boss and there's a lot of decisions that have to be made. And it's good to get counsel and it's good to look at numbers, uh, statistics and, and all that other stuff. But when it really comes down to it, I believe that what we really need most of all is wisdom from God. And one thing that um, there's a book in the Bible called Proverbs, <laughs> and it happens to have 30, uh, 30 or 31. How many chapters does it have? It has 31 chapters, as a matter of fact. And um, so there's one for every day. So I thought that uh, I would just read chapter 2 of Proverbs and um, give you an example of the wisdom that it offers for us. It says uh, in chapter 2, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Boy, that's what we need. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just, and he protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will find what is right and just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you, and understanding will guard you. And it goes on. I could continue to read, but uh, I just would encourage you to consider looking at Proverbs for wisdom because that's really what we need is wisdom for all of these challenging problems and financial things and city things and all these things that you have to make decisions on. Uh, I would hope that you would seek the wisdom of God. I'm just going to pray real quick. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just ask that... Um, that you would give those who manage the city, those who run the city, that you would give them divine inspiration and wisdom to face and solve all the many pressing problems that we have, that, God, you would prosper and bless this city, that, God, you would give us great ideas, give them great ideas, give the citizens of this city great ideas that will bring uh, prosperity and... Um, uh, joy and happiness and peace, wholeness, healing, health to this city. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Trent. Is there anyone else who would like to address the council at this time? Step on up. Hello. Sandra Lingle from Eureka. I just want to um, talk about public safety. To me, that's the police, that's the fire department, the ambulance, 
and I do not want to lose any policemen or women. I do not want to have the uh, fire department on Myrtle Avenue closed because when I voted for me the measure, that's why I voted for it. As far as the other departments that want a piece of the money, they should be second and after these the police and the fire department get their money, then they can get what's left over. We need them as a senior citizen who lives on Ninth uh, and I behind the Hilton there. I need these people. Okay, so that's all I want to say. I don't want you to do this at all because if it happens, I will never vote for another measure again, ever. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else like to address the council at this time? Okay, seeing no one, we will close the public comment period then and move to public hearings. Um, first public hearing is Lodge at Eureka. Rob? Evening, Mayor and Council. Um, this is a great project um, before you. It's been before you a couple of times. Uh, Melinda Peterson and um, Brian Gerving really deserve the credit for getting it to this point. The question before you tonight is about financing, and so I'm going to be introducing uh, Anthony with the California Municipal Finance Authority, and uh, Chris Dart with um, Danco um, is also here for questions. So, with that, I'm going to introduce uh, Anthony. I'll be available for questions. Thanks for having me, Honorable Mayor, Council Members. Uh, we're here tonight pursuant to the um, tax, tax Equity Fiscal Responsibility Act, um, better known as TEFRA. TEFRA requires that a public hearing be held in the, uh, by the governing body in uh, the jurisdiction in which a project to be financed is located. Um, Eureka 8th Street LP proposes to obtain tax exempt financing in amount not to exceed five and a half million dollars to finance the acquisition and rehabilitation of a 50-unit uh, senior multifamily affordable housing facility. This will be commonly known as the Lodge at Eureka Apartments, and it's located at 424 8th Street in Eureka. The California Municipal Finance Authority is a joint powers authority. Uh, we are formed to assist local governments, nonprofit organizations, and businesses with the issuance of both taxable and tax-exempt debt. Uh, the city of Eureka will need to become a member of the CMFA's JPA, and this will allow the CMFA to issue the debt for the proposed project. Uh, the debt to be issued by the CMFA will be the sole responsibility of Eureka 8th Street LP, and the city will have no financial or legal obligations or responsibilities with regard to the financing or the repayment of the financing. All financing documents will carry disclaimers that the loan is not an obligation of the city. The city will also bear no cost with the issuance of the proposed debt. This is uh, merely a private loan between the borrower and uh, their bank. And so with that, I will take any questions you might have. Okay, thank you. Staff, um, council have any questions for staff at this time? Nope. Okay, thank you. 
We'll open the item for a public comment. Is anyone present that'd like to comment on this agenda item? Please step forward if you come on up. Hi, my name is Midge Catching. I'm just a citizen of Eureka. I live across the street from the downtowner. And I understand that this project will go through. Uh, what I wanted to say was just something about the parking lot. Um, this is a block that a lot of people think of as level, but it is not. It's about 10 feet higher on the F and 9th Street corner than it is on the 8th and E corner. And the runoff from storms is significant on that parking lot. Also, this is a building that will have 51 units for seniors who need affordable housing. Many of them are not going to own cars, yet we have a lot there that has more parking places in it than there are units in the building. And I'm wondering um, <clears throat> about the feasibility of putting a planted area, particularly one with a swale, on the low corner of that parking lot to take up several of the parking places so that it's not such a large sea of asphalt there. Thanks. Thank you. Is there anyone else like to address the council regarding this project? All right. Okay, go ahead and step forward. Good evening, Chris Start, uh, Danko. I just wanted to acknowledge that I was here in case you had any questions of me. I don't really have anything to add, um, but I'm here for questions. Okay. Marion, go ahead. Yeah. Yes, because um, okay. I didn't have questions of him, but of you. I, th I think it's questions for you. So okay. we, we had a printout of the answers that you gave us for some of the questions that we had during our agenda review. Sure. And so what I'm just not a little unclear about is um, if the, the, reve the, the, um, the revenue bonds are up to 5.5, but if the project is 8 point, about 8 million, yeah. Is uh, and then we see some of the different types of loan structures that are in between, like where you're borrowing from local banks and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. or or private investors. What's you know is the five included in the eight or because it didn't look like it was. There, yeah, there's two two sets of financing for a project like this. There's the construction financing, which is what the 5.5 is about, and then what you see here is a list of all the permanent financing. During the construction, some of this financing is not going to come in until the end of the project. Like a portion of the Raymond James financing comes in after the project's already completed. Um, the developer note comes in at the end. So the 5.5 million is sort of gap financing through construction, some of which will be paid off for a total project financing of 8, $8,088,000, if that makes sense. So it's a, it's, a, it's a portion of the financing, some of which is going to be retired with permanent financing at the end of the project. So there'll be a second step then to couch the three million that's kind of not being covered. Yeah, there's an there's a initial closing that will happen um, at, uh, we're shooting for October. There's an initial closing that will happen. The construction financing will come into place and um, some of the other financing will go into escrow and then financing is drawn down as certain milestones are met. 
For example, um, each month when there's a draw process, you know, some of the construction gets done, we submit a draw, the draw is funded, and then at the end of the project, once it's occupied, then we submit to the investors, they fund, we pay down some of the, the, the debt, and then at the end, some of the debt is, will be remaining for the 710000 Okay, thank you. Okay, let's finish public comment here, and then if they have more questions, sure. we'll we'll have you come back up again. Okay, thank you. Does anyone else like to comment on the project at all? Okay, I'm going to close public comment period then and return it to council. At this time, if you have questions or you want to bring anybody back up, we can do that. So, any questions, comments? We'll entertain a motion then. I would like to move that we adopt the resolution of the City Council authorizing issuance of bonds for the lodge at Eureka, a senior affordable housing project, and authorize staff to execute exercise powers of agreement authorizing the California Municipal Finance Authority bonds for financing the lodge at Eureka senior affordable housing project. I'll second. All right, it's been moved and seconded. I just one question, uh, if you can come back up again, the, the comment that was made earlier regarding uh, a different configuration for the parking lot. Is that a possibility? Sure. We're, we're open to a different configuration of the parking lot. I think that, um, you know, there are development standards that we're meeting um, with the parking. but And we also do have some low-impact development strategies with some of the planners that are there. And in addition to that, we are going to be raising up the parking lot to make sure that everything is um, handicap accessible um, through via through a five percent no no greater than a five percent slope from anywhere in the parking lot to the to the front door so we're open to reconfiguring um, but we also have to meet the development standards that the city has set out for us and that's what we ha that's how we have it designed okay all right no further comments go ahead and vote Unanimous yes vote. Motion carries. Okay, that moves us uh, to the consent calendar and all matters um, listed under this category considered to be routine by the City Council and will be enacted in one motion. And pursuant to City Council Resolution 2011-22, if a member of the public would like an item on the consent calendar pulled to discuss separately, that request shall be made to a council member prior to the meeting. Uh, unless a specific request is made by a council member, the consent calendar will not be read and there will be no separate discussion of those items. So is there any item on the consent calendar that the council member would like to have pulled? Okay. I'll entertain a motion for approval of the consent calendar. I move approval of the consent calendar. I'll second. Moved and seconded. Any discussion? Let's go ahead and vote. Unanimous yes vote. Motion carries. Okay, moves us to item five, annual review of service rate adjustment of solid waste collection. Good evening, Mayor and Council. Uh, this item is the annual rate review for solid waste collection within the city per a franchise agreement that the city holds with Recology Humboldt County. For the upcoming 2015-16 fiscal year, staff is recommending no rate increase for the rates that were approved by Council in July 2014 and an increase in the franchise fee of 4% to 9%. 
City currently receives a 5% franchise fee of Recology's gross receipts. The revenue from the fee goes towards the general fund. Similar to last year, this year's rate review resulted in a 1.5% decrease. The combined total of, last, of the last two years' credits combined is $440,000. Staff is recommending utilizing this credit to increase general fund revenue by raising the franchise fee from 5% to 9%. Doing so will result in an ongoing increase in general fund revenue of $315,000 per year. If Council approves staff's recommendation, Eureka, Eureka will be in line with other franchise agreements in the area. Humboldt County's franchise um, rate is 9% and Arcata's franchise rate is 10%. The city will still maintain $125,000 credit to go towards next year's periodic rate review. Staff is recommending maintaining the remaining credit so that accrued credit can be used to offset future annual and periodic rate reviews. This annual rate review includes the Humboldt Waste Management Authority's approved disposal fee increase of $2.22 from $126.79 per ton to $129.01 per ton. The review includes a cost of living adjustment for all costs and shoring up of disposal costs as required by the franchise agreement. The decrease in expenditures for this fiscal year was due to a more than expected decrease in disposal tonnages because of the city's mandatory curbside recycling program and the mediocre economy. The associated costs related to this year's annual rate review have been analyzed by city staff and found to be justified. The results of the rate adjustments are as follows. For the typical commercial customer with a one-yard bin, they'll continue to pay $160.65 per month from July 1st of this year until June 30th of 2016. For a residential customer with a 30-gallon can, which is the typical residential service, they'll continue to pay $26.45 a month from July 1st of this year until June 30th of 2016. Staff would like to compliment Recology as they continue to do an excellent job of not only of collection but also resolving any issues and responding to any emergencies in, in, in quickly and doing it so as when they arise. With that, staff recommends the council adopts the attached resolution and approve no rate increase for solid waste collection services for fiscal year 2015-16 and increase the franchise fee 4% to 9%. And staff is available if there's any questions from council. All right. Thanks, Miles. Uh, Natalie, go ahead. Do we have an idea of what the increase would look like for the average residential and commercial um, user after 2016, like in the 2016 to 2017 year? So uh, the way the franchise agreement works is there's an annual there's for every two years there's an annual rate review. Um, they shore up costs like disposal costs and some other uh, total allowable costs. Um, every three years is a periodic rate review. This next upcoming fiscal year will be a periodic rate review. Um, we typically see uh, a rate increase during those periodic rate reviews. However, recently those periodic rate reviews have been increases for the most part because of new programs. We implemented the mandatory ordinance and we had residential go into place and we had commercial go into place. But to give you an idea, the previous um, periodic rate review, there was an increase of 2.36%, which for every percent is approximately $70,000. And so for the average customer, 2.36 of a residential would be approximately 30, 40 cents, something like that. Okay. And then for a commercial customer, obviously, it would be correspond to 2.36 of 160, 
$1,500 a month. I guess in my mind I was seeing that uh, 5% increase as something that would automatically be passed on to the ratepayer, but it sounds like it's affected by more factors than that. Yes, as it's, it's affected mainly by how the projected estimates for all of those costs are, are, are predicted by Recology. Um, they typically do a pretty good job of estimating those costs. There's been an unusual decrease in disposal costs because of, which is a good thing, because that means that we're diverting more waste away from the landfill. So there's been a decrease in disposal costs over the last couple of years. However, the periodic rate review really shores up everything. So all of those costs that are associated with the franchise agreement are shored up. So that's why there's typically an increase. Okay. But we will have $125,000 to offset any increase. Okay, thank you. Any other questions for Miles or staff? All right, thanks, Miles. Thank you. We will open the item for public uh, comment. Is there anyone present that would like to comment on the agenda item? Okay, seeing no one, we'll close public comment period and return it to council for your action. I would move um, uh, staff recommendation. Second. Moved and seconded. Any comments or further discussion? All right, go ahead and vote. Unanimous yes vote. Motion carries. Okay, move to item six decorum at city council meetings. Amendments. Yes, city. Mayor and Council. This is the second reading of Bill number 833 which is a proposal to amend the language of EMC sections 30.13 and 30.99, which concern the decorum of public at city council meetings and the enforcement for violation of the, or, of the ordinance. Modifications are being suggested due, due to a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal case, Acosta versus City of Costa Mesa, which holds that a municipal code that prescribes conduct of the public at council meetings should be limited to address activities or speech that result in actual disturbances. As written, 30.13 could be construed to apply to speech that does not cause an actual dis disturbance. So for that reason, I'm recommending that the council waive reading, read by title only, and adopt bill number 833. Thank you. Any questions about the item? Okay. We'll open for public comment. Is anyone present that would like to comment on the item. All right, we'll close public comment period and return to the council. Is there any discussion? If yeah. not, I, um, nope. I'm, hmm? I move that we waive reading, read by title only and adopt bill number 883-C.S and an ordinance of the City of Eureka amending Title III, Chapter 30, Section 30.13, and Section 30.99 of the Eureka Municipal Code to clarify decorum of the public at City Council meetings. Second. All right, it's been moved and seconded. Any further discussion? All right, go ahead and vote. Unanimous yes vote. Motion carries. Item 7, Parklet Pilot Program. Rob, you got that one? Right. Um, 
So we have a presentation here for you um, that should clarify what a parklet is and what this concept is, and then we'll get to the staff recommendation. So this slide here um, that you see, this is a parklet, and so I'm going to spend a little bit of time just defining parklets so that we can understand what we're talking about here. So this is also a parklet, and you can see this van in the back is parallel parked along the street. This parklet is in a spot that a car would have been parallel parked. So effectively, a parklet is you take a structure that's about the size of a car and plop it down where a parallel parked car would have been, and then it stays there for some period of time. And so here's a diagram of what that looks like. So the yellow and black cars are both parallel parked, and then the other cars are traveling in the lanes, whereas the parklet is sitting there in a parallel parking space. Um, parallel parking spaces are defined as 8 feet by 20 feet. So here you can see this parklet uh, is taking up a parallel parking space, and then along the line you can see other parallel parked cars along the way. So a parklet is effectively a sidewalk extension. It's an extension of the sidewalk out for some small distance. It is a mini park, and so that's where the name parklet comes from. Uh, the original parklets were really just for people to sit on benches, stuff like that, art, um, landscaping. But it eventually evolved to be mostly privately constructed and maintained places, and so I'll get to what that means in a moment. Um, occupies one on-street parking space, sometimes two or more, but for the moment we're going to restrict this to just one on-street parking space. It's the width and length of one parking space, 8 feet by 20. It's at the level of the sidewalk, and so here is some examples of what that all means. So you can see down here in this yellow circle that this parklet is at the same level as the sidewalk. It's not at the same level as the street. It's got this lane delineator here so that parallel parked cars can see where they need to stop before they hit the parklet. And it's got one on this side. It's hard to see in this picture, but you can also see there that there's a concrete wheel stop, the same thing you get in a Safeway parking lot. It's the little slab of concrete in front of you so that your car can't pull up and smash into the, uh, the parklet there as you're pulling forward. There's also a uh, delineator to stop pedestrians from stepping into the traffic, and there are tables that match the tables that are underneath their awnings, so they bring all these tables and chairs in at night. And so here's a side profile of what this looks like. And so down here, this is the sidewalk and the curb. So you can see it's at grade with the sidewalk, at grade with the curb. The way that's done is there's a wooden platform, typically, that's raised up with a riser here. You can see that the riser all the way on the other side that's closer to the center of the street is smaller because streets have a 3% crown so that stormwater drains off into the gutters. And so that wooden platform there that those uh, people are sitting on is level, and there have to be different size risers so that it can be level because the street is not actually level. There's space underneath to allow stormwater to flow through. There is a uh, building code regulation. Anything above three feet requires a building permit. So often you'll see uh, parklets not exceeding three feet in height. That way it doesn't trigger a building permit. They can exceed three feet in height, but then you get down a different permitting path. And then finally you can see that it's only large enough really for two people to sit across from each other at a small table. So these are pretty small structures um, that we're talking about. It's two primary types of parklets. One are for public recreation and others are business-oriented. And under the business-oriented category, you have two types, those for restaurants, which are the vast majority of parklets, and then other. And so I'll define those in a moment. So let's first start just look at some public recreation examples. So this is in San Francisco. People waiting for the trolley, instead of waiting on the sidewalk, can step out into this little queuing area. If you've ever been to the uh, trolley, sometimes you have to wait in line. So the city came up with this idea of let's just have a little extra space for people to queue up take up less space on the sidewalk. We're jamming up the sidewalks, all the business owners complaining about the line. So 
They had people start to line up in these parklets and they took away a couple of parallel parking spaces. Here is one, uh, this one's in Portland. And so this is just benches, it's just a mini park. Um, this was established by the apartment complex that's um, where the photo is taken from. And so they wanted to have a place for the residents to sit. This is one that the city owns. Uh, I can't remember the city, but uh, this one's you can pick it up with a forklift. They bring it in for special events like Arts Alive, plop it down in one parallel parking space, and then they pick it up and move it. And so they only have it once a month or so in special spots. Here's another one that is just a, uh, just a public recreation parklet as is this one, and I will get back to this one in a moment. Business-oriented parklets are far more common. Um, here's one, so this woman is waiting outside at a spa. So she went inside, checked in, said, I'm here for my four o'clock appointment. They said, oh, we're running a couple of minutes late. Why don't you have a seat outside and we'll get with you in a moment. So she's sitting out there waiting. It's just simply a waiting area. This one is an architecture firm. They um, applied for a parklet and got one and they have an outdoor conference room. So they sit down with their plans, they're called uh, DC Workshop, and they um, have an outdoor conference room for their architecture firm. But most of them are for restaurants and so in the city of Seattle they call them streeteries to differentiate them from others and so if you hear the term streetery, it's a place where you can eat on the street. So here's a streetery, parklet for restaurants, another it's an example um, with, um, I can imagine, probably more than uh, umbrellas, we're going to need heat lamps. Often you'll see them like this so that the restaurant owners can take their tables and chairs in at night. And that's the vast majority that you will see. You can see that also this one and most of them are, do not exceed three feet in the structure itself. The umbrellas don't require a building permit, so the structure being lower than three feet doesn't require a building permit, neither does that one. And this is really the size that we're thinking about for Eureka right now. Uh, you can see that most of them have railings or some way to stop pedestrians from stepping out. This one also has bike parking incorporated into it. This one is the most complex that I've seen. It's got that uh, structure above three feet. The uh, brick wall there is about three feet, maybe a little bit higher, but that would trigger a building permit. Also, it's important to emphasize, and I'll get to in a moment, that parklets are really established as temporary uses. And so the business owners understand that, and they're taking a risk to some degree. If the city needs to pull up the pavement in order to get to a pipeline, or there's some compelling reason, the city always has the right to say, you got to move that thing. In this case, this owner of the business took a risk and said, I'm going to put in these bricks, and maybe I'll have to break them apart, and then deconstruct the wood, and then redo the bricks. So even if you know it has to take it out for a month so the city can do maintenance, he could rebuild it relatively easily. It's, uh, it's, even though it's bricks and you have to break it, it's not impossible to reconstruct that. So how are they constructed? Typically, you have a wooden platform that's built on the street, um, just like this, or you have those risers that you saw in that profile photo, and then the deck is on top of those. And then you put the furniture or um, stuff that you're building right on top of that. This one's got a metal frame instead of a wooden frame. Um, if I can go back here, you can see this, these slats here are a, a, wood, or a metal frame. And then it looks like that, pretty simple. This one looks like it's built out of crates on the, uh, the, the landscaping side. It still looks nice. And uh, it's important to emphasize that they're designed to be temporary, so that one can be picked up with a forklift. Even this one, you can see that you, know, you can deconstruct it if you need to. So how have other cities done this? This is really very new uh, in the U.S. Um, and San Francisco invented this concept. Europe has picked it up. It's popular throughout the U.S. in various cities, many cities the size of Eureka, and so I checked into that. Um, San Francisco has this 
parklet-o-matic um, uh, sequence of going through a permit to get a parklet. And I was really inspired by this. I want to utilize this model for all of our permits here, and so I'm working on ideas for how for us to do flow charts. So this is a little bit of an aside here, but it's also useful to see what San Francisco does since they invented this concept. So I'm going to zoom in on various parts of this and kind of flow through the monopoly board here. So first, uh, San Francisco receives proposals every year. They have more demand than they have space. They're not willing to just fill up every, well, every parallel parking space. So every year they release an RFP process, allow businesses to propose, um, nonprofits, anybody that wants to put in a parklet. Then they receive those proposals, review them, and select the top number of the total amount that they're willing to do, certain densities per block, and they have some considerations. For those that are selected and invited, then they go through a development and permitting process, followed by a fabrication and installation process, and then finally uh, the parklet with inspections from the building department. City of LA has this version of that same flowchart. And this is 18 jurisdictions in New Jersey that all got together and said, let's simplify our permitting processes, and we'll just have the same exact permit process for parklets. And so 18 jurisdictions in, in the state of New Jersey use this process for parklets. There are a number of manuals, and so instead of re reinventing the wheel, I intend on, um, lacking a better word, stealing ideas from all these other cities to save us time. And so we have already incorporated uh, ideas from San Francisco, Sacramento, San Jose, and an older version of a Sacramento parklet manual when they first came out. And so there are various diagrams that we can use on where the dimensions are, how high they can be, what distances and spaces they need to be, what they cannot be on top of, um, various dimensions, how stormwater should work, ADA accessibility, et cetera. So we've got all of these standards, and we've already got together in probably an hour, Lisa was able to pull together um, some standards for ourselves. So the Eureka pilot program, so here's what we're proposing to permit up to three parklets citywide for an 18-month period. The reason we chose 18 months is we want four seasons, which is 12 months, plus two more seasons, so that the business owners that are taking a risk in doing this during this pilot project have some incentive to give it a try, so they can experience the summer seasons, the fall seasons, which are more of our busy tourist seasons, um, more uh, business for restaurants, who I imagine is going to be the primary applicants. So we have an 18-month period. During that time, of the three that are permitted, we will, um, as staff, check on the suitability of the design standards that we've borrowed from other cities. We will look at stormwater impacts. Do the design standards that we've utilized really address the stormwater impacts? Are there any problems with stormwater? Are there any problems with traffic? Are there any problems with parking? Uh, how's the neighborhood sentiment? How do the neighboring businesses feel? How does the general populace feel about these things? Is there an increase in business as all the studies that we're um, uh, looking at indicate? So I really want to see that. I want to see if do we experience the same increase in businesses that every other city has said they've experienced. And a number of other considerations that we'll check out throughout. Also during that 18-month period, we will seek feedback. So we'll go to the Planning Commission and get their feedback on how they feel like it's going. Uh, Economic Development Commission, which will be coming to you in a month to establish. Uh, hopefully if that goes through, then we'll be checking with them. Design Review Committee, Traffic Safety Commission, Open Space Parks, and Arts and Culture. So we'll check with all of them to get their feelings so that by the end of that 18-month period, we can give you a range of feedback so that you can decide whether we want to extend that 18-month period. To select the parklets, we're going to do an RFP process, and Lisa Savage is here who's been critical in helping us get to this point, and she will um, walk us through what the RFP process would look like. Good evening, Mayor and Council. Um, 
In order to select the three parklets, the staff proposes an RFP process. There will be eligibility criteria, location restrictions, design criteria, and permitting requirements. The eligibility criteria. You're going to have to meet one of these categories in order to be eligible for a parklet. A nonprofit institution, a community organization, a school, a property owner that could be commercial or residential, storefront business owners, and other applicants may be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. Location criteria. Obviously, you have to be within the city of Eureka limits cannot occupy, occupy at this time more than one parking space. In the future, we may consider going to two parking spaces or more, but at this time for the pilot project, only one parking space. No colored curbs either, just regular parking spaces, which could include um, the two-hour parking spaces. Cannot conflict with engineering, with existing engineering requirements cannot cover manholes or public utility valves or covers, must be set back from the intersection. Um, if there's a bulb out like we have in downtown Eureka, then you can use the first parking space after the bulb out. At this time, we're only going to permit that um, the parklets are allowed on streets with speed limits of 25 miles per hour or less. In the future, we may consider going up to 30 miles per hour or less. There are slope restrictions. There's a 5% uh, grade that you have to meet. And other requirements that the city may add to the list once we are um, out for RFP. This is a map that shows um, all the streets that are not available for public parklets. Um, the green ones would be possibilities to be phased in after the pilot project, those are the 30 mile per hour speed limits. Any other streets that are not colored would be available for parklets at this time. Um, places in the city of Rica that would be perfect for a par parklet, the Morris Graves Museum, especially on an Arts Alive night. They could extend out into the street a little bit and you know, have different things going on. Ramon's Bakery in Old Town Eureka. Um, the Humble Bay Tourism Center would be a great location. Sea Grill. Uh, the Oaxaca Grill right now on Henderson Center would not qualify because that road is a 30 mile, 30 mile per hour speed limit. But around the corner, Velotini's could do it on F Street if they wanted to. Design criteria. Dimensions and buffers, which Rob already went into. Um, the biggest thing is you need 45 inches on either end so that you can put some kind of protection from cars running into it. So he talked about the um, tire buffers. Access and enclosure um, has to be safe for the people to be in it and it has to be ADA compliant. Has to be stable and secure. Um, has to be ADA accessible and the furnishings also that they could put in the parklet also have to be ADA accessible. The materials have to be suitable for um, Eureka weather, let's say, so they could be, um, they have to be able to withstand the year-round use. Has to be approved for drainage. 
and they have to be designed for easy removal and restoration. And that includes um, removal in the event of an emergency. And be attractive and creative. They need not be expensive, but they have to be attractive and creative. There's lots of ways to um, do them with reused products and recycled products and repurposed products. Permit criteria, the process is going to be um, regulated by an encroachment permit at this time. That'll cover your um, liability insurance to meet the city's needs, hold harmless. May need a building permit depending on um, what the applicant submits to the city for review. Need to submit draw, uh, design drawings which would help us decide whether or not you needed a building permit a maintenance plan. The request for proposal process. The city is hoping upon council's approval that we could um, go out for RFP Monday, this coming Monday, June 8th. They would be, um, the proposals would be accepted and submitted to the development services department mid to the end of July. That would give them about seven weeks to get their proposal together. They'd be rated by staff towards the end of July. There'd be a maximum of three parklets brought to the council for, for approval, and that would be in August. Permitting would be in August, and then the 18-month pilot project would start August 2015 through February 2017. Thank you, Lisa. So after the pilot, um, what happens at the end of that 18-month period? If the pilot's unsuccessful, we determine this isn't working, it's taking up too much parking or it's dangerous or it just doesn't work in the city or everyone does, doesn't like it, then we terminate the encroachment permits to the three pilot projects and we're done. Um, those three pilot parklets. We ask them to deconstruct them and uh, we don't have to talk about it anymore. If it's successful, uh, then staff would present options to council probably around months 12 to 16. We'd start to be able to come back to you with our um, findings and we could say, all right, it looks like this is working. So we have some tweaks to the design guidelines that we're going to make changes to. Uh, we have some density restriction uh, recommendations, so we don't think any more than one per block face or one per five blocks is, is uh, appropriate. So we will start looking at those density uh, restrictions over the course of the next 12 to 16 months. And then um, there are probably going to be some municipal code changes, so we have a little bit of work ahead of us if we decide to proceed past the pilot stage. So uh, the only negative feedback I've gotten so far are how much is this costing the city and um, will homeless people just sleep there all the time? And so I felt like I would just um, get the elephant out of the closet and let's just talk about it. So will these become places for people to sleep? I would sleep there. Um, I don't think we would approve that one. Um, it doesn't, you know, it's a covered place that looks like a place, great place to sleep. Um, I, even if, you know, there wasn't a concern about homeless, I think that we probably are going to have three pilot projects that are going to exceed this sort of thing. Um, it's more going to be benefiting businesses. This one has built-in benches. You can't pick up those picnic tables very easily, so I imagine this one would promote people to sleep on them, possibly. But the vast majority are really like this, where people, um, the business owners pick up their tables and chairs and go inside. But ultimately, it's up to the business owners to maintain these. So there's a maintenance plan, there's a maintenance agreement, and so if the business owners, if somebody comes together with a really great um, proposal that looks like this chair with a covered you know, tarp and we decide that we can go for it, it's really their responsibility to maintain it, and so that's the agreement. I can only assume that this is really what we're going to get proposed to us, but again, it's the business owner's responsibility to maintain them. 
So, why do this? There's a lot of studies that indicate that this is a, uh, a great builder of economy. Um, I also spent some time looking through the Council of Vision, and this matches, uh, at least indirectly, several Council of Vision um, uh, items. So there's a lot of newspaper articles uh, of why to do this. Um, and so summarizing them here, parklets energize commercial districts. Um, they support businesses, uh, increase park space, and that's in quotes because it's not officially really a city park. It's just the feeling of a city park. Even if it's tables and chairs, it feels like an increase in the park space in the city. Uh, positive impacts the aesthetics and enhancements of a streetscape, and it also provides traffic calming. According to a NACTO study in the city of Philadelphia, the Green Line Cafe, there was a 20% increase in revenue, not only at that business, but the two neighboring businesses. Same for the Mojo Cafe in San Francisco, a 30% increase in the revenue of the three businesses right next to the uh, parklet. Increase in foot traffic's up 37% in many uh, examples, and then increases of number of people stopping by and sitting 30%. According to Seattle, 70% um, of businesses um, believe that it enhances the, the feel of the neighborhood. 80% uh, of businesses feel like it increased their business. 90% of uh, business, or, um, respondents wanted more parklets in Seattle. And 100% felt like it was a useful neighborhood space. And so this is the city of Seattle after their pilot project. They were um, very cautious on how to proceed, so they permitted a certain number and then tested them out over the course of a 12 or 18-month period. And so this was the result of their um, pilot study, and then they permitted them permanently after that. Cost of the city. This is entirely up to the applicants to pay for. No cost to the city for construction or maintenance. As far as we can tell, there would be no cost to the city. However, because these first three pilot projects are going to be taking a risk, and it looks like, from my research, that parklets cost between two dollars and $10,000 to construct. This is an investment for these businesses, and they're taking a bit of a risk in this pilot study. I propose that we waive the permitting fees for the pilot program, which would be encroachment permit, potentially building permit, and if they're in a design review area, then a design review permit. They'd still have to do those, but uh, I propose that we waive the fees for those in order to um, provide an incentive. So here's staff recommendation to proceed with the RFP process, three parklets, 18-month period, and waive permit fees. So I'm available for questions, as is Lisa. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Um, we'll get the lights back on. And Okay, Marion, go ahead. Thank you, Frank, and welcome back. Um, three questions, uh, So, or two questions, really. Um, the process, once you put out an RFP, that means like you could have 20 people uh, applying. Uh, is, uh, is there any thought of doing some sort of a lottery to see who gets those or something like that? So make it so that people don't feel that somebody got preference? Sure. So what we were going to do is to have a selection panel that consisted of someone from public works, engineering, parks, community development, maybe some other um, involvement, maybe some people from outside of city government to rate all of the proposals that we get and to look at things like um, density. And so if there's two great parklets proposed right next to each other, it might be a little bit risky to put them right down next to each other. Uh, could cause parking problems or, you know, considerations. If we do a lottery system, you could end up with things that you may be three in Old Town on the same street that you might not want. So um, we certainly could go with a lottery system. We'd have to make sure in the lottery system that everyone that's put into the lottery meets the requirements. The way we've written the RFP right now is you get scores for certain things. You get scores for the quality of your proposal based on um, your conceptual design, 
um, why you think it would be a benefit to your business, why you think it would be a benefit to your neighborhood, whether your neighborhood's a commercial district or residential. So um, I'm happy to go with either system. Right now we've got it on a qualification quality basis um, with a scoring system. Well, that sounds, you know, very adequate. Um, and um, a question, you know, when you talked about the fact that some of the um, uh, businesses next door um, achieved more business, you know, uh, an increase of revenue, um, was, are, are each of these like that one that's shown on the slide there, is, are, are those exclusive to the people that made them? So if somebody goes into Old Town Coffee and Chocolates or something and buys their coffee, but somebody else has got one from Ramones and comes over to sit down, I mean, is it an exclusive type thing that they own it, kind of, they run it, only their people can enjoy it? The way I understand is that even a restaurant, um, people can go in and out as they please, right? So it's a little bit of a tricky situation. I'm not trying to dodge the question, but uh, all the other cities have had to deal with this. And so typically they are considered public space. And the restaurant owns and maintains it. And so if someone was unruly there, they could ask them to leave. But they don't have to officially sit down and order something to sit down at the tables. But um, from all my research, it hasn't really been a problem. Okay. Melinda, go ahead. What about uh, regulating smoking in those areas? Is that um, part of a condition a condition that w we could put on there, or is that up to the owner of the parklet? Um, I fully support having a restriction on that. I'd have to do some research. I'm glad you brought that up before you release the RFP, um, if we do that. Um, that is something we need to check into. I think that's a great idea. We should restrict smoking. Marion? Well, we currently have laws about 30 feet from any doorway, window. So I think that would never be 30 feet from a doorway. Yeah. Kim, go ahead. So what about alcohol? Can you speak to that? What about alcohol? What about <laughs> it? Uh, so thanks to Charlotte McDonald, I met with the ABC, the... Um, and know what ABC stands for, I could, but I could come up with it. But yeah, alcohol beverage control. Okay. Uh, and the woman we spoke with was cautious about uh, ABC permitting alcohol. So if you were at, for instance, Gabriel's, would have a, a nice uh, opportunity to do this and would have a glass of wine with dinner sitting out under a heat lamp uh, in the middle of the winter, right? It's, it's a viable possibility. Uh, they were cautious about um, whether they would permit that or not. Um, so we're calling around San Francisco, all the other cities in California, to see at least within the city of Cal or the state of California how other cities have done it. So it looks like other cities have let it happen. I propose that we allow it to happen. Um, if a restaurant owner can control a crowd that's drinking alcohol inside, then they need to be able to control um, anybody that's drinking alcohol outside. So I propose that we allow that. That's actually the next item on the agenda because right now um, people aren't allowed to drink outside of restaurants, and so we need to, to look into that as well. Um, yeah. Linda, go ahead. Probably not in these, these three parklets, but it, if this worked out, I saw one picture where uh, the parklet was more of a park with a, like a topiary and a, a little bit of sculpture. So is that something that would be possible in the future? It doesn't have to be just seating for a business? 
Absolutely, and if uh, Keep Your Eco Beautiful or some other nonprofit, um, any organization could really propose to do this. In fact, San Francisco and a couple of other cities, when they do their scoring systems, because they also do these RFP processes, they give preferential points to nonprofits first in order to create public spaces instead of just seating for restaurants. It turns out that business owners happen to have more money and to be able to do this because it generates more business, so it's the sort of thing that pays for itself. So it's difficult for some nonprofits to come up with the capital to do it, then to maintain it and to keep it going over time. But um, yes, there's nothing stopping them from putting in a sculpture garden or an art. Um, it could be a great thing along F Street for F Street Art Corridor if we had a, a person applying. Go ahead. So uh, it intrigued me, uh, one of the examples, or maybe a couple of them, that you showed there that um, these things can also be portable, and you can lift them with a forklift and move them from one place to another. Um, so the thought just crossed my mind is, what if the city owned one, two, or three of these and moved them around, you know, Arts Alive or um, rented them? Uh, to businesses that wanted to have some kind of uh, one-day sale or what, whatever sure. it might be. Um, what do you think of that? Sure. So um, I'm glad you asked. It's not quite as simple as I um, made it seem. Oh. Every street is a little bit different, right? So it's like there's little bumps and, you know, every curb's a little higher or a little bit lower. And so you can pick it up with a forklift and take it away. But to then put it back in a different spot, you have to have someone come out and measure all the areas. So as long as we had a plan about when we knew where it was going and we had everything measured out ahead of time, this is probably a better question for Brian than me. Um, I think the building department would have to get involved. Parks would have to get involved to make sure it's level and safe. But there's theoretically nothing wrong with that. Um, it's not as though that you could pick it up with a forklift and move it every hour, wherever you felt like it. But yeah, yeah. as long as we're prepared ahead of time, yes, that's definitely a possibility. Okay. Good. Any further questions? All right. Thank you, Rob. And Lisa? We'll open the item for uh, public discussion. Is there anyone present who would like to comment on this item? Come on, step up. Charlotte McDonald, Eureka Main Street. And I am really excited about this. Earlier today, I came across some proposals from 2007 from firms that were talking about parklets that we'd been working on through the Redevelopment Agency. So I'm in strong support of parklets. I think that this is an exciting um, time. It's the appropriate time to experiment with something like this. And I really encourage the city council to get it behind it. So I just wanted to say thank you, and I hope you support this, because we do. Thank you, Charlotte. Go ahead. My name is Mike Bittner, and I, <clears throat> pardon me, my name is Mike Bittner, and I live in Eureka, and uh, I'm actually here to speak on the next uh, item, which is there's some overlap, as Rob said, and I wanted to, first of all, congratulate Rob, uh, Mr. Humlin, and his staff for the kind of forward thinking that he's bringing, uh, bringing to our community. Um, and the parklet, I never knew they were called parklets, but I've sat and had lunch or dinner in various communities where they use these things. And I want to say the one nice benefit is, in a, and not unlike our old town where the sidewalks are narrow, these things add additional uh, seating or space for seating outside of places, and, uh, and they're really a neat thing. So um, just wanted to make that comment that I've used them a lot and enjoyed them very much, and I look forward to seeing them in our community. All right, thank you. 
Hi, my name is Jimmy Shine. I'm a city resident here. Um, I think it's great that we're exploring this parklet idea, and I've really seen it work in other cities and take off, um, especially so since there really are no outdoor dining options in the city and very few in the county. Um, but I'm wondering also uh, with this RFP process, will there be any consideration given to um, parklets that are pet friendly where you could bring your dog to uh, an outdoor dining area? Okay, does anybody else like to address this uh, agenda item? All right, we'll close the uh, public comment period then. Oh, I'm sorry. Come on up. I just wanted, my name is Christy Prescott. I'm a resident and I work in Eureka. Uh, I just wanted to say that uh, it's a really exciting idea and I'd like for us to pursue this as a community because um, as uh, the last person who is up here said, we don't have a lot of outdoor dining opportunities with uh, you know global climate change coming on. Um, you know, sort of enjoying some of the uh, warm weather that we've not experienced lately, but um, <laughs> but I would really um, be excited to see that happen here. Thanks. All right, thank you. All right, anybody else like to talk about the item? All right, we'll close the public comment period then and return it to council for action. I'm really excited about this idea too. I really, um, the idea of bringing opportunities to bring community together is great. And the idea that we can actually be outside and be together, another great thing. And to have more room on the sidewalk and just to have more people out and about, great thing. So I totally support this 100% and I look forward to seeing it flourish. Um, so do I make a motion? Go ahead. Where do I see? I don't see it on here. So I, re I uh, make a motion that we go with staff recommendation. I'll second it. Moved and seconded. Any further discussion? Let's go ahead and vote. One moment. The staff recommendation did not include waive fees, so if you could direct staff to waive fees, that would be helpful okay. for me. So I make a motion that we take staff recommendation and add waive fees. Thank you. You're welcome. Natalie, you're still seconding that. I still second it. All right. Go ahead and vote. Unanimous yes vote. Motion carries. All right. Moves us to item A. Vibrant commercial districts. So we all have a busy week uh, ahead of us, a couple of long nights, so um, you'll be happy to know, I think, that um, this one is extremely short. So uh, this is it. That's the whole presentation there. So uh, I'm trying to think of ways for us to increase uh, the vibrancy of our commercial districts. How can we um, make Old Town, Henderson Center, or other commercial districts more exciting, uh, attractive to both tourists, but also other people in the county. How can we get more people from Mortuna and Arcadia to be excited about coming to Eureka? And uh, there was a uh, public comment last um, council meeting about mobile food trucks. I've been approached by multiple people about that topic. Um, apparently my staff has been approached by that, about that topic. 
numerous times a month over the past year. Uh, then serving alcohol outdoors at restaurants, uh, multiple businesses have approached me as well as citizens that don't own businesses. So there's interest in that as well. And then pedestrian plaza, um, I'll talk about what that means in a moment, but uh, engineering, Brian Irving, Charles, Sheila have all discussed this in the past. The, past. the Traffic Safety Commission has talked about that. So um, these are not my ideas, but I'm, I'm bringing them forward um, and seeing if you're interested in us proceeding any farther with them. So really all I'm asking is if you want us to staff to proceed with doing research on these three items, and then we'll bring back to you the municipal code changes that would be required. So starting at the top, mobile food vendors right now, um, I was mistaken about this. I've told a couple of people that our uh, municipal code doesn't allow mobile food vendors. Quite the opposite, our municipal code doesn't say anything about mobile food vendors. And so the way staff has interpreted that up to this point is that mobile food vendors are like any other restaurant, and so they're only allowed in certain districts. And it's extremely small um, set of districts and where they're allowed right now, not allowed in the coastal zone. It's not addressed in the local coastal plan, the coastal commission. So. Um, up to this point, staff's taken a very conservative approach about what to do in the coastal zone. Um, I'm willing to take a much bolder approach if council's interested in going in that direction and making some municipal code changes so that mobile food trucks are actually addressed in there. So I could come back to you in the future about what I recommend, but before I even spent the time doing that, I wanted to know if you're interested in that. So that's the first one. Uh, serving alcohol outdoors restaurants. Um, right now we have an open beverage container. It doesn't allow open beverages outside, and so that's even with the restaurant. So um, um, what's the restaurant that uh, has outdoor seating? It is Cafe Nooner. Um, used to allow beer. Um, they changed owners, and then that new owner came to the city and said, you know, can I do alcohol? And, and staff said no. So what used to be a use when nobody asked is now not allowed, and so they're asking, hey, can we do it again? I've had three or four other restaurants say, I just want to have my customers sit in a table outside, right outside the door here, two tables, and have a glass of wine. Can we do that? So I said, I'll look into it. So um, there is a question of whether you want us to proceed on changing the municipal code to allow certain um, uses, probably only restaurants, outside of their businesses. Talked to ABC with Charlotte, and they said as long as it's right outside the door and it's contiguous with their parcel, up against the building, ABC would permit that use. The park is a little bit different a question because pedestrians have to pass through a special zone that they define. So I'm not sure how to proceed if you want to talk about these one at a time or you want me to go over all of them and then come back. Yeah, why don't we go over all of them and okay. we'll come back. Pedestrian um, plaza is really shutting down a whole street to traffic, usually just one whole block. So, for, for instance, F Street between 2nd and 3rd Street, so that vehicles cannot drive on it. We have a history of doing this for the farmer's market, so certain times you close down a street, and people walk on the street, and they don't have to ever worry about cars being there. So we could uh, explore the possibility of doing this permanently in Old Town through a pilot project where just for Arts Alive, we close down one block face and maybe every Arts Alive we rotate it and see how the businesses feel and how the citizenry feels. It's a number of different directions we could go with this. Um, and Brian, did you want to say anything? So Brian, Brian's the one that really encouraged me to, he said, if you're going with those two items, you should bring that one too. And I thought it was a great idea. So um, we could come back to you with which uh, areas we propose to do as a pilot project and what times. So those are the three items. And, um, there's more to come with creating vibrant commercial districts, but for now, these are the three. Marion, go ahead. <clears throat> so 
it seems like I've heard discussion in the past that brick-and-mortar restaurants sometimes get pushed out of shape because they've got uh, vendors coming that have no skin in the game kind of. What's the solution that with that? Is that has that been covered? <coughs> sure. Um, well, this, this is capitalism, right? So um, may, may the best man win um, sort of thing. And so uh, mobile food trucks are in lots of cities all over the country. Um, Arcata's got a lot of them. In fact, several brick-and-mortar restaurants in Arcata started as mobile food trucks, and so it's to a large degree a business incubator program. <coughs> Businesses can get their menu established and get their clientele established, get their Facebook pages and their following going, and then they can find a brick-and-mortar place to move into once they've built up enough capital. And so... Um, I'm very sensitive to the demands and interests of restaurant owners throughout the city. I don't think that a taco wagon would really threaten any existing restaurants, but I'm willing to hear um, anyone's comments if they think otherwise. Um, but I, I don't think it would be a problem. I, it works in Arcata, it works in Ukiah, it works in Portland. I think we can make it work here. Has there been consideration of other mobile businesses? Um, I know in some of the, you know, big hip cities, they have, um, you know, mobile um, vintage clothing shops and things like that. So um, it's sort of a trend in general to have this sort of um, mobile business model, um, which, you know, has some downsides for the owners. Uh, as far as space limitations, but you know, it's something that uh, I think could increase a little bit of interest and vibrancy in our downtown. I grew up going to the bookmobile once a month, <laughs> so that's what comes to mind. Um, we could always proceed with the pilot uh, project kind of thing and just to allow three mobile food vendors citywide for some period of time to see how they go, and they could be restaurants or um, clothing stores. I might have to look into that one. It didn't occur to me. I'm, I'm not as hip. Maybe as, as you are. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rob. <laughs> I think there's a number of types of businesses that operate in that way, um, you know, and they kind of have some similar constraints, right? Like, I mean, uh, a brick-and-mortar restaurant has indoor seating and has that perk going for them, uh, you know, an inclement weather or a, uh, you know, in the case of a clothing shop, you know, they have limited space for people to try on garments. And, you know, but there are a lot of different models that I've seen for, um, you know, for vending. Uh, and I think it does offer some benefits to the to the owners too. So I'd be interested in hearing what other options there are, and and you know if there are any interested businesses, and not necessarily just limiting it to food. I can look into that. Any other questions? Oh no, statement. <laughs> I, you know, for one, would like to hear more about this kind of teasing us with different ideas. That's good. All right. No more questions? Thank you. We'll open the item for public discussion. Is there anyone present that would like to address it? Let Charlotte talk first. So Rob's making this so much fun for me and so easy. Thank you. Um, we totally support the council getting behind these options. And I was thinking on the mobile food vendors when you said that, Natalie, is that we can explore, and Rob, this is something to think about, the home-based businesses. This might be an opportunity to embrace home-based businesses and see if they might be interested. And maybe we could even explore it as pop-up 
galleries like we've been doing. So I just wanted to lend my support to this. I think that this is really cool and um, I'm excited. So that's all I had to say. Thank you guys. Thank you. Well, good evening, Mayor, Council, um, staff. Uh, my name is Joe Filgus, and I own Cafe Nooner down in Old Town, and also, along with my wife, I should say, uh, and Cafe Nooner 2 in Henderson Center. And um, first thing I wanted to say is just to commend staff for bringing this forward. I, I'm, as Charlotte uh, mentioned, I'm, I too am very excited. I should also mention I'm, I'm a board member with Eureka Main Street, just to have full disclosure, uh, but I'm speaking here directly uh, on behalf of, of our businesses and, and, and how we think that these items being brought forward um, especially now can be very beneficial not only to our business and our customers but also to uh, all the other businesses within the city of Eureka whether they be restaurants or, or other, other businesses. Um, I wanted to specifically um, address the alcohol component. Um, Rob mentioned um, Again, back in 2011 when we purchased the uh, Cafe Nooner in Old Town, uh, I think most of you have probably eaten, eaten there one time or another. I've seen most of you there. Uh, so you are familiar with the area that we have for our outdoor seating. Um, and <clears throat> we've gone through the process of getting the encroachment permit um, and all of that back in 2012. Uh, and again, as Rob mentioned, we found out much to our chagrin that, oh, nope, you can't serve alcohol out there anymore, um, which really ticked a lot of our customers off. I don't think I lost customers. They, you know, our food is what we <laughs> sell. Uh, but it was certainly nice for them to have an ordered glass of wine or, or a pint of beer uh, while they were enjoying their meal. Um, so I would suggest that that particular item be fast-tracked. I know there's a lot of other restaurants um, both in Old Town and downtown Eureka and Henderson Center that serve beer and wine that would like to have that um, uh, capability. Um, we all know that the ABC really has full control over how that is set up in the various areas, uh, but having the city take this first step um, quickly now uh, will enable the rest of us to get together with the ABC and take those steps to, to hopefully bring that back. Certainly in our spot, um, it's it's a really great thing and I'm, I'm really excited that that Rob has and Brian have brought this forward uh, just really commend both of them and uh, look forward to working with them to uh, further develop our patio area um, uh, I've got some good ideas and, and I, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, bringing that to, uh, to Rob's attention to see you know what we can do to work together so again thank you very much for listening to me tonight and um, I just encourage uh, y'all to move forward on on this and, and especially the alcohol component so thank you Thank you. Your turn. <clears throat> Mike Bittner again. Um, yeah, that's the, way, the reason I came down here tonight because uh, this has been an issue for me for a long time. We travel a lot, my wife and I, and we love eating outdoors in front of restaurants and having a glass of wine or a beer. Happens everywhere you go, and it's always been so enjoyable, and it's always been a mystery why Eureka didn't offer that until I learned from Mr. Filgus that what the issues were. And so for me, this is an important thing because it brings a vibrancy when you get people outside. And, if it, and often the restriction, if it's, if it's one of serving the alcohol, I think the restaurants are less likely to even serve the food. And to have that combination and be able to bring people outside, you'll see as you travel, I'm sure you see the line to wait to get a table outside is much longer than the line to get a table inside. 
And so the more we can do this to our old, old town and Henderson Center, we can create more vibrancy, more, uh, more people coming out and, and participating in our community than they do now. And the same thing for the food trucks. I don't think they detract from the other businesses. They're going to actually bring people into the uh, commercial districts to see what's there and, and utilize the other offerings that are there. And the last item was the um, pedestrian plazas. I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, one of another pet peeve is, uh, and sometimes Arts Alive, um, <clears throat> the number of people on uh, Second Street is so great they're flowing into the street already. To be able to shut one of those blocks down for Arts Alive and try that out and see what happens, I think will be a huge benefit because it's actually a safety hazard now. And uh, so that's all. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Come on, step up. Mitch Catching again. Um, on the subject of alcohol outside, I agree with everybody else who's already spoken here. Um, very often when you're in other cities, you'll find a particularly popular restaurant bringing small glasses of wine out to people who are standing in line to make their weight uh, a little easier. Um, I have uh, myself stood outside brick and fire with a glass of wine and other people have as well. Um, on the subject of food trucks, Austin and LA both have huge districts where uh, food is served from food trucks and the food has become extremely inventive and everybody seems to have profited from it. Businesses around there have, um, in Austin frequently there's a band involved. So, um, and on the subject of uh, closure during Arts Alive. Uh, my husband and I go to almost every Arts Alive and I really feel strongly traffic shouldn't be permitted down 2nd Street. It's people, some of the drivers are considerate, some of them are not, but there's too many people already in the street walking around and uh, frequently, frequently there are kids there too. So thanks. Thank you. Go ahead and step up. Hello, council members. My name is Mike Ross, and I own Southside Mike's Barbecue. And I'd like to thank you, Rob, for thank Rob for mentioning the food truck issue. Uh, we talk about a vibrant commercial district. I'm from, I moved here from Chicago. I've traveled quite extensively throughout the United States. I'm a very foodie person and usually my travel involves food some kind of way. Uh, and I've been to several other cities where food trucks have really created a large, vibrant scene for the city. And I'd also like to go on the record to uh, get the record straight about some of the negative images that food trucks present by calling them quote-unquote roached coaches or things of that nature. We are so far mo uh, removed from that at this day and age. Food trucks today are really, really creative, and they really present some interesting and exciting food for people, and people are enjoying that whole scene. And I think around town, as I drive around looking around and seeing a lot of empty properties, to have a food park 
a food truck park or a food court would be one of the most exciting, vibrant things this city could do. And it would generate a lot of income, not only for the food trucks, but for the other restaurants as well, because when people get out and start eating, they just want to go and try more and more and more around the town. So it really stimulates a vibrant food kind of activity because there's so much going on. And as long as I've lived here in Eureka, I've learned that we all really are foodie in our own ways around here. We like to eat. We like to try things. We like to go out where there is food involved. So I think the more we have to offer, the more people would really, really come out. And I think also he mentioned uh, the, what was it, the parklets. Wouldn't it be nice to have a mobile food park that would include a really nice parklet within it that would bring about those two concepts at the same time? And I think it would really promote a vibrant community. And the young lady, Kim, said that uh, she likes the fact that we can come out and be together as a community. And I think that's just one more option that we can really utilize to have us all come out. Thank you very much. And thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mike's comments there made me reflect upon uh, my studies at Humboldt State when I was studying um, sustainable cities and really looking at uh, some models of sustainable cities um, and thinking back about Portland and some of the strategies they've used and they had a mobile tea house with a tea horse on it and they really used that as a stimulus to bring people to spaces that were not broadly utilized by the you know um, greater community these forgotten spaces and so it was a way to bring uh, civic life and the greater community back to some spaces where people weren't necessarily attracted to go and so I'm thinking you know areas by the pier at the end of uh, I don't know if that's Hawthorne but there's some really wonderful, fabulous places that are really underutilized by the broader community here. And I think it would be exciting to have something to attract people down there. And this might be a really um, fun way to get at that without a lot of investment. Thank you. Very fancy. Good evening, everyone. So everything, I'm Galen Goldstein. I was here and I spoke about mobile food vending last time. And everything everyone's saying is so exciting. I didn't know all of this was happening already. So I'm really I'm really excited. And I wanted to mention one thing that I talked about last time, that um, there's also a late night safety issue. There's a lot of drinking. I've worked in places in Old Town for years. And there's nowhere for people to eat in the Old Town area late at night. And I think that mobile food vending could address that. Um, I really like the idea that this, well, I'm not sure what your name is, but that you, Mike, brought up about having like a, a space for a bunch of food trucks to come together. A lot of cities are doing that. And um, a great place to do that would be in that huge dirt parking lot right in front of the bay where we do the um, fair and everything every year. Um, it could bring a lot of people out. And um, yeah, I'm just really in support of this. And I think what you brought up, uh, Ms. Brady, about um, Food trucks potentially being, you know, outrunning some of the restaurants. I think, as a lot of people have said, it's a really creative outlet, and I think all it would do is create like a, a better, like kind of sort of competition and creative thing 
theme going on because a lot of restaurants in Old Town, while they're great and historic, they kind of can get stuck in, you know, one certain kind of thing. So it's always fun to shake it up. It brings people to town. So thank you, and I hope you support this moving forward. Thank you. Any other comments? Hi there. I go by uh, Chuck Carlson, and this is just so cute. Um, I just wanted to uh, 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 suggest a couple things to look at as far as like a vibrant and lively uh, uh, old town and uh, business district. Um, we have uh, no one takes their uh, relatives to the mall to when they want to show things off. So they generally come down to Old Town. Um, the, uh, you know, open space, where we have open space, population density, which m might have something to do with uh, height limits and, and, and the population density in Old Town um, is, a, is a wonderful thing. Some of the uh, underused resources we have, and uh, my perspective is obviously skewed on this is uh, uh, is Opera Alley as far as uh, pedestrian things and shutting uh, uh, shutting streets off and everything I mean Opera Alley it's just what a great name um, it's rather downtrodden right now but uh, I believe that ought to be looked at and um, I always thought that the corner of the uh, third and D where we have that parking lot would make a, a wonderful place, a multi-use place for, you know, maybe uh, uh, some, you know, some well-maintained roach coaches and and uh, stuff like that. I, I, you know, there are some there are some serious downsides to uh, to uh, uh, um, food trucks. I mean, I love food trucks myself, but uh, it's not all roses uh, when it comes to that. So. Basically, when you're talking energy use and uh, and traffic issues, you know it it needs to be dealt with in a uh, in a real coherent and fair way. Um, but I, I would say to have a farmers market and a a, a place maybe for food trucks on uh, on Third and D would be a would be a a great way to to green that area up and. Um, Obviously, Opera Alley is just a, a fabulous name, you know. It's, you, anyway, oh, I've got 30 seconds left. Well, that's about all I wanted to say. Uh, thanks for uh, being up there. All right, thanks. Any, any more comments? Okay, we'll close the public comment period then. Um, Rob, do you have enough direction on this, or...? Just comments. I just asking wrong. I'm getting the feeling that I should proceed. Okay. All right. We'll bring it back to council. Marion, you had a comment? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, support the whole idea of uh, having some street closures uh, during Arts Alive. Um, I don't. I, maybe there's a way to do that in a way that isn't quite as invasive or whatever as the big barrier things maybe there's some other technology where you know like those sticky things that almost like a like a dart thing that lane delineators yeah that kind of thing something that's lightweight that could just 
it'd be easily put up, maybe could be stored in one of the stores instead of having to have public works and everybody involved. I don't know. Just be creative about how that street closure happens. I think it'd be good. I was holding it all back because it wasn't a question. But uh, I like all of this, and I think that probably the, the alcohol would be kind of the first thing to start on because we already have businesses who really want to have that happen. Uh, but I think all of the uh, all of the issues are, are something that would really help our downtown and old town. So I probably the alcohol and then the mobile food vendors and then the figuring out how to do a pedestrian uh, area in old town. So this has been a great meeting. This I, this is just such an exciting meeting for me. Just it's. A feel-good meeting, you know, uh, bringing people together. I like it. So um, I just wanted to speak to the pedestrian um, pilot study. I've been hearing that for years and years about closing those streets during Arts Alive, and I think that's going to be a great idea to just see how that all works out. And um, actually, I've had people say, well, why don't we just close those streets, period, and just have that be a pedestrian kind of a an area for people to be in. Um, so just another consideration after the pilot program. And then um, it's funny that you brought up the vintage clothing trucks because <laughs> I didn't know I was so hip. But when I was in Oakland, I actually went to um, a park where they had these kind of, um, they had like horse trailers with people with clothing in them, and then they had tents with different things. And it was just a great, it was a weekend thing, like a vendor show, but it was a really great thing. And they had bands and that type of thing. And um, and then on, on the food truck line, I know that like in Rockland and Sacramento, once a month they have a food truck Friday night. So all the food trucks get together at Springview Park and they have bands and people gather and they drink and they have fun and they eat and they dance and it's just another great way to bring people together. Um, so I'm also excited about that. I just, it's so exciting to see that we are moving in more of a direction where community can come together, work together, be together, talk together um, outside. <laughs> so thanks so much. I say go for it. Well, I'm a big food truck fan, too. Um, I love that show on the Food Network. The, uh, <laughs> I watch that every time it comes on to see who wins. And those, I have to agree with, uh, I, think, uh, I think it was Mike that said the food trucks these days are, um, you know, modern and clean, and I'm sure there's health and safety standards that have to be complied with. Um, as well, but if uh, anybody has visited the area in Portland of food trucks, it's just like what you all are saying. I mean, you just don't walk up to the first food truck. You go all around the block and you check them all out and see who's got what and um, maybe stop at one or two and then another one for dessert. So I think it really would attract um, a lot of uh, business and a lot of foot traffic. Um, I don't know that they're could be a permanent spot for that. You know, it's something you'll have to investigate and look into. Um, but I, I think it's a great idea, and, I, and I'd like to see you definitely um, pursue that uh, in one, one way or another. Um, you know, the only other non-food truck thing that I've seen is uh, people that come around and repair your windshields in, mm -hmm. in, in your, you know, the glass and your wind, wind chi chips. I've seen those parked at uh, malls, like in Sacramento. They'll just 
pull up and you can pull up and while you're shopping at Macy's you can get your window uh, repaired but anyway um, serving alcohol outdoors um, I didn't realize we weren't allowing that so um, because there aren't very many places to eat outdoors around here for one but I, I think definitely uh, that should be fast-tracked and would definitely help these businesses um, I would hope though that they wouldn't um, charge more to sit outside I, I've actually been in places where they charge more for a cup of coffee or a drink because that's all you get because all you want to do is watch the people walk by um, so not really in favor of that but um, and the closures of the street like during Arts Alive I think it's a safety issue too um, I would bump that up as you know looking at looking at that as a safety issue because it does get crowded down there there are people um, that drive too fast and then not only do you have people crossing the street where they're not supposed to be crossing you know you've got the horse and carriage um, yeah I think it's time we look at that too so thank you for bringing these forward I have a real shocker here. I'm in favor of all three. Um, I wondered, uh, since I snuck in a comment and during my question period, I'll, I'll sneak in a question now. I wondered if there was a distinction between hard alcohol and beer and wine when it comes to outdoor serving. No. No. Okay. Um, and are there any guidelines for seating outdoors that we currently give businesses, uh, you know, alcohol notwithstanding? Do they have a pretty clear idea of what it takes? It's so an encroachment permis, permit okay. process required, and it's relatively restrictive um, and interpreted that way. Okay. Okay. Well, I think all the closed streets in Old Town are a great place for all those mobile food trucks and all the people that might be a little boozy. So I think it sounds they, they inter interface really lovely. So yeah. Anyway, thank you for bringing this forward. While I'm here, if I may, I've tried so hard to keep this one short, but um, a couple of things have come up. So. This is mobile food vendors that we're talking about, so it's not just trucks. It could be a guy pushing a little um, popsicle cart or a woman carrying, you know, some, you know, hot dogs. So it's mobile food vendors. It's people selling food with little something. Could be a truck. Could be a little push cart. So that's you know, kind of expand your mind a little bit to to, to the mobile food vendors, not just food trucks. Um, should give Miles Slattery, Parks and Rec director, some credit. He has um, had some ideas of creating a place that mobile food vendors can pull up that has grease traps, electricity, and everything that requires so that they don't have to have um, generators and so that it's not noisy and so that they're, you know, it's a well-designed sort of park environment so we can work together to look at that as a possible long-term plan. Um, and then uh, Kelly Martin, owner of a couple of buildings on either side of Opera Alley, has come to me and said, can we just turn Opera Alley into one giant pedestrian facility and get some pedestrian scale lights through here. It's such a cool little spot. You've got um, some cool businesses back there. You, so um, give him some credit for that. So I'm looking into that idea as well. I didn't mention that one. Okay, thank you. Great ideas. Okay, Mr. Manager, we'll move to your reports. Thank you, Mayor. We have two more items. Uh, we have a report from the Open Space Parks and Recreation Commission. And that uh, will be followed then by the police department after that.
Hello, Mayor, Council. I'm Larry McNeil, Chairman of the um, Open Space Park and Rec Commission, and I am honored to work with people on the Commission who are absolutely remarkable. I'll tell you who they are now. There's uh, Craig Benson. He's going to be doing the bulk of this presentation. Rick Littlefield, Bruce Rossler, Barry Smith, Kathy Sabillo, uh, Jill Stover, who's been on there since before Eureka was a city, I think, Amy Washburn and Greg Williston. So these are the people on the commission. They're remarkable. What we do, of course, is we are sort of the, the buffer between the public and the city council. We make recommendations to the city council to get things done, and you do them. We have tremendous people from the city who help us, uh, Donna Wood, who's the recreation director, and Miles Slattery. Of course, I might have just promoted somebody. I don't know. But Miles Slattery does a lot of work for us. We get an idea, he makes it happen. And I'd just like to point out one thing that I'm sure that Craig will be talking about. If you haven't seen the Eureka Dog Park, that has been in the works for years. Amy Washburn headed up a, 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 a public commission or a subcommittee that raised the funds, made it happen, built that thing, got the city to do it. The city cooperated tremendously. And if you haven't been out to see the dog park, if you have a dog or not, go out and take a look behind the old General Hospital. It is magnificent. It's a beautiful thing. Miles and, and, and Amy Washburn, a lot of people, Kathy Sibilla, who is now on our commission, worked to have that done. So without further ado, I'll introduce Craig Benson, who has a presentation. Thank you, Chairman McNeil, and good evening to the City Council. This is my first opportunity to address the all-woman City Council, uh, Mary Yeager, not um, ex excluded. Um, I have made my children watch uh, this, these proceedings. I'm, I'm raising daughters, and you all serve as wonderful role models, and I wanted them to see an all-woman council. And, and on the side, it's, it, it'll be nice, that at least for a brief period, not everything will be blamed on the men. <laughs> all right. So um, I'd like to um, give the annual report and talk um, a, a little bit about, for, especially for some of the new council women, um, really what our charter is for Open Space Parks and Recreation Commission and just give an overview of accomplishments and highlights of the coming year and then talk a little bit uh, in preparation for Thursday um, about kind of the business of parks and rec. So this, I suppose this is uh, a bit small to read, but um, as Larry said, we are in an advisory capacity. We are working for you and for city staff and are delighted to do so um, as an intermediary between the public and you folks um, to, to advise about all things open space, recreation, and parks, um, and, which now includes the harbor as well. I've added and harbor. We probably need to have our powers and duties um, revised to include the harbor and to make recommendations um, to the council around annual budget. So you'll hear a little bit about that today, um, this evening, and again on Thursday. And then also to, um, to consider and accept or reject donations or personal property and real estate for the use of uh, open space parks or, or, and recreation and make those uh, recommendations to council. And um, I will move on. This is it's a one-page thing, and and then also to for us to look at rules and regulations around the use of parks, um, and uh, other kinds of amenities, and then um, lastly, 
um, to really look at policies for, for the acquisition and development and improvement of open space parks and recreation areas. And then H is just to do whatever else you would like us to do to promote parks, open space, and recreation, which we are delighted to do. As, as Chairman McNeil said, we really have a, a fantastic commission uh, with folks from engineering backgrounds, from uh, watershed, from we have uh, you know construction backgrounds, uh, business owners, Coast Guard, I mean, you name it. We really we have a commission that, that really um, is able to get things done. We have a forester um, really able to look at a lot of issues. So really quickly, I'm, I've been a resident of Eureka for some time, and I chose to live in Eureka. I, I, I did graduate work in Humboldt State and lived up in Fieldbrook, and I had a little bit of, um, you know, I didn't come to Eureka all that often. And then at some one point in my life, I really looked at Eureka and wanted to live here because look at where we live. I mean, look at this incredible... Um, you know, confluence of, of watersheds and estuary bay and marine environments. And it's an incredible place to live, which, which you know. And how we uh, relate uh, parks, recreation, and open space and the harbor are, are a big part of how we interact with this environment, both with working waters and working lands um, and urban areas. So I, some of you have been on, have heard this before, but now, now, you, now you get a chance to get, get tested. And one of the things that really shocked me when I got on um, Open Space Parks and Rec was how many facilities and amenities and parks and open spaces there are. Um, so I'm going to put the question out there. Any, any guesses? How many, how many amenities does the Open Space Parks and Recreation Commission look at? Just broad guess. Okay, it's not a test. I'll just tell you. Um, <laughs> there are 136 parks, amenities, building, 80 buildings alone. So um, 80 buildings plus now 11 parks. It was nine when I first got on the commission. Um, we define parklets in a different way than, than Rob did. Um, you know, we look at parklets as very small parks that usually have no fences, that are open, that may have seating, um, certain, usually have landscaping that, that the public can use. Um, we wouldn't call a median strip a parklet because it's not very safe for the public to be there, but we have other kinds of parklets that often have um, statues or some kind of historical plaque or something that's a little place where people can can be. Um, and so that's what we consider parklets. Uh, there are squares, medians, landscaped areas added to open spaces. There are uh, 136. Um, as I said, when I first got on the commission, there were nine parks. There are 11 now, and these are just a sampling of them. Um, so, the, so the new ones um, uh, are the skate park, and that's part of Cooper's Gulch and also the dog park that Larry mentioned. And I didn't want to, I wanted to put the people um, in it just so you didn't think parks are empty spaces. They are heavily used, all the parks and open spaces in Eureka, by a wide variety of ages um, from, from the elderly to, to infants. Um, notice on the top right, um, many of the trails and, and parks are even used for kids going to school on a daily basis so it's not just recreational use there are thoroughfares um, for folks as well these are the two new parks the eureka dog park and well the skate park isn't exactly new now but um, uh, it, it has increased us to nine to nine parks and then numerous parklets like clark plaza like the del norte street picnic area are are some examples and then certainly, um, and I've said this before, if you can, if you can hit it or, or whack it or slice it or kick it or float it, there's some place for you to do that in Eureka um, in terms of balls or discs. 
um, of any kind. We have a huge amount of ball fields and golf courses, uh, disc golf courses as well, um, tennis courts, you name it, it's out there for you. And lovely facilities and amenities that you're all familiar with um, around town that are also income generating locations as well uh, for rent. And wonderful open spaces that and other that, that keep increasing. Uh, the Hikshari Trail showed here. Myrtle Grove Cemetery is, a, is an open, considered an open space. Sequoia Park Forest, um, the Henderson Community Garden, etc. Um, what I could not say enough about are the recreation programs and events. It's just amazing what this staff is able to generate in any given year. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, you know, when I when I look through the the quarterly um, magazines that advertise everything that's going on, I'm I'm amazed how much is put out there and these this is this isn't even all of them but you know a wide variety literally more than a dozen youth and teen programs huge focus on the youth but you know not leaving out adults of all ages and facility rentals for people who are residents and people who come to town and are attracted by um, those facilities as well um, just a, a you know a couple of pictures of some of these um, you know soccer there and uh, ceramics classes so there's recreation going on there's learning going on there's fitness going on this is all good for our community if you um, if you want to play baseball or softball you can you can be in an all-women's league an all-men's league a co-ed league there's opportunities uh, abound you see ballet there um, and some of the recreational sports are um, very competitive I mean as you can see on the top two slides I mean look at this women's volleyball this these are serious of volleyball players and same thing with the men on basketball and the guys my age and older are really loving the pickleball these days it's amazing how popular that's becoming the lower left and the Adorney Center I mean what what it's you know it's the most low-cost gym that you can join and none of none of the others have a view of the bay quite like that it's it's extraordinary um, one thing I wanted to show um, also was was just that this isn't all f just feel-good stuff. The, especially the after-school programs, the youth programs, um, the the tutoring and homework programs are really used by families. They're they're fulfilling needs that aren't just recreational. Um, think about all the after-school programs and the parents that are able to work an eight-hour day because they're able to send their children to these after-school programs and um, many of the summer camps. You know, this helps our economy to keep those folks working all day and not having to work just part-time. Um, this is good for us on a lot of levels beyond just education, learning, um, and fitness. And, you know, in particular, you know, looking at um, the Gulch program and the Leaders in Training program, we're, we're really teaching life skills um, to, especially to our youth. And, um, you know, just I think about I know we've put a lot of emphasis on, on public safety uh, in the city of Eureka, but I want to throw out the idea that, t to me, this is, this is a big part of how we create public safety, is that we provide opportunities for our youth. We keep them occupied in, in positive ventures. We turn them into leaders um, with life skills through the leaders in training and the Gulch programs um, and so on. And then also our, our open spaces include working lands and working water. So this isn't just recreation. This is business and livelihood as well. Um, here's the Unity Garden, um, which Linda Atkins is very familiar with, and, um, you know, and, and also looking at, at, at the harbor uh, amenities as well. So these lands are providing people with, uh, with food security, 
um, especially those families who wouldn't have a place to grow uh, vegetables, for example, or, or get food other than from the, uh, from the ocean. And then just a, a brief list that I won't go through of the incredible amount of partnerships that, that Parks, Open Space, and Recreation staff um, uh, engage with in order to provide these amenities and these programs, um, everything from Rotary Club you know, to RCAA, to Food with People in New Directions, to the schools and, and Little League and Humboldt State University, Boy Scouts, on, on and on and on. This is really building a fabric of strength in our community. So I'm moving to the second part of the presentation. Um, Open Space Parks and Recreation put together a strategic plan, um, and I presented that to you some years back. And I just wanted to give you a brief update of where we are in that strategic plan. And this, this strategic plan really dovetailed so nicely with the, with the visioning, um, uh, the new visioning plan that, that the city, um, that city council went through. And um, I won't go through the tables like I did last time, but I just, I'll just get you, you know, right to the quick of where we are with that plan. There were 17 goals over 10 years, and um, you know many of those goals were, were long-term and not easy to accomplish, and some were, were quick fixes. Um, we really wanted to focus on cost-saving goals. We really wanted to build the capacity of the citizenry to support parks, uh, to help the Adopt-a-Parks program, to get volunteer coordination to support parks. And we've made huge, um, you know, staff has really gone far. There's been over 1,000 volunteers per year um, brought out to parks, open space, and recreation um, and to, to be involved. Think of the cost savings that that represents um, to the city to have that kind of citizen involvement um, at the level of getting things done. Um, and then income generation goals, really looking at community forestry, looking at the waterfront trail, recreation programs, rentals, um, the harbor. I mean, if you add these together, uh, parks the, the recreation, parks, open space, and recreation um, department brings in more than a million dollars a year. So this is, it's not a revenue um, neutral program yet, but it's, it's certainly, all that goes into this, the city's general fund, um, which really helps the city a lot. So it's not, it's not a taking um, department, it is a giving department in all ways. Um, the earliest, the early goals of that strategic plan were to complete the Hikshari Trail segment, to complete the waterfront trail, uh, the, at least the planning of it for the phases A through C, you see check marks by, the, by many of these things. I mean, this is huge. Just since 2012, look at some of these big items that have uh, been accomplished. And my hat's off to staff and council for seeing this through. Um, so the Hikshari Trail segment was completed. Um, the planning for phase A through C is either done or underway, or contracted at this point. Um, you know, the Watershed Heroes exhibit at the zoo was completed. The Eureka Dog Park, most recently on April 8th, um, completed and opened, at least the first phase of it. And also the exploration of opportunity sites for the establishment of community forests is way ahead of schedule. We thought that was going to be a 10-year uh, planning horizon thing, and because of the county and Green Diamond and TPL and, and others, um, you know, that has already moved very far ahead of schedule, and we have a community forest that the city is adjacent to and part of. Um, just a couple pictures of the Hikshari Trail um, under construction, and it's heavily used, and I've seen all of you out there at different times. Um, the Watershed Heroes exhibit is just absolutely fantastic. Um, the dog park is open, as you can see, and at least phase one of it. And so, you know, this, this project is one that was done really, it's a, it's a citizen-developed park that the city facilitated and allowed to be created on city property. So this is a really excellent example of, of what partnerships 
can do. And, and this happened because people made it personal to get it done. And so I'm asking the city council to make it personal to see phase two get, get done so the whole vision can be realized because the citizenry has, has gone ahead of you in this case and provided this for the city. So looking, yet things yet to achieve that we had hoped to achieve um, you know, by now or be fairly uh, far along are these. Um, you know, we're still, you know, imagine these 80 buildings. There's three full-time equivalent maintenance staff for these 136 amenities um, in Eureka. I mean, obviously do the math and, I mean, how do three, how is that even possible that three people can even open all those buildings and bathrooms in a day, let alone maintain them and do preferred maintenance? It's, it's, it's an extraordinary feat on a daily basis. Um, uh, so we really need a long-term maintenance plan. We have so much deferred maintenance at all of these facilities, um, you know, ADA issues, on, you know, on and on that really need um, to be addressed. And we had hoped to come up with a plan for that, and that's still um, on our table to, to help develop with staff. Um, the Greenways and Gulches Ordinance is something we've put a lot of time into. It's one of our subcommittees, and even after 13 years, um, have, have still not seen that become a, a complete reality. And I'm hoping that on your watch as council um, women that, this, that we can protect the Greenways and Gulches or, or show what kind of development is possible in there and what kind of development is not. It, we're very far along in that. It's literally something we could do in three days if we could just get um, staff assigned and committed to it, and we just have not been successful at that. Um, there's always been something like the general plan update or something to supplant that. Um, just those little things, you know. Um, um, to improve access and availability of public bathrooms, I couldn't help when I was thinking of Rob talking about the parklets. You know, can and I know this wouldn't necessarily be something a business would want to go into, but we have been approached by um, by uh, Norcan and by a group called Free to Pee. Um, you know, they, they gave us a, a long presentation showing all the bathroom, the public bathrooms that are city-owned and how few of them are actually open on a daily basis. And, you know, it's a real issue for them. They really brought up folks with medical conditions to um, testify to us. And, I mean, it, it really hit us. And so that we have, you know, we, we really have a need for public bathrooms. And, and, um, and so this idea of parklets makes me wonder if that at some point might be a way to provide a public bathroom um, a temporary public bathroom in city areas. Anyway, just a just a side thought. And then one of the things that that has really surprised me, um, even though law enforcement has been incredible in their uh, management of this, um, really it's it's the parks and rec staff that end up, or the park staff in particular, and open space staff that provide a huge amount of management of and cleanup for the homeless camps. And that's really an unfunded mandate that that Miles Slattery has to deal with on a, nearly a daily basis. Um, really equal and in some cases greater than, than, than some of law enforcement's uh, burdens, at, at least at times. And uh, that's, a, you know, that's, a, that's a, a big piece of the work that, that takes his staff away, time away from his staff, um, you know, to the loss of some other programs. So looking out for this 10-year plan, the things that, that we're looking to, to still try to achieve is to connect to the larger regional trail system. You know, that's both the California Coastal Trail that the Eureka Waterfront Trail is a huge part of. So the, you know, connecting to the Arcata um, Eureka Link, looking at the Ridge Trail, which go, which could go from Arcata Community Forest all the way through the McKay Tract, through BLM Headwaters Lands over to CR, so that we really have a, a complete loop, a coastal and ridge loop, and that the city of Eureka would have pieces of that. Um, 
to uh, increase participation in use of the bay. So having the harbor district become, the harbor become part of recreation was a huge step towards trying to provide more recreation amenities and use of the bay, um, both through water trails and aquatic um, recreation. And then to also increase the participation in indoor winter sports. And there's, there's been a lot of progress on that. And I just saw some, you know, some ideas about the sports complex over at Halverson Park, so it seems like that may go, um, be moving forward as, as uh, in time. And then also there's such a need for, for volunteer coordination. I said we've you know, had 1,000 volunteers a year, um, and that's without having a dedicated volunteer coordinator. Imagine what more we could do if, if it was somebody's job on staff to be a volunteer uh, coordinator. And as we are looking for money and looking for ways to get things done in the community, um, and then also, it wasn't part of the original plan, but you know, especially with, with, with the, there being such an emphasis now on really trying to address the unhomed and homelessness in our community, looking at the exploration of a sanctuary campground or dignity village type place in the open spaces in Eureka, something that we talk a lot about on, in open space. So let me move to the, to the, to the very last bit here. And this is short, um, uh, the business of parks and recreation. Um, investment into parks, recreation, and the harbor is really providing a desirable, accessible, and safe amenities and programs to both residents and visitors. Um, this is good for Eureka on every, on every level. Um, it increases the quality of life, it ups the real estate values, and, and as I said before, I really believe that these are inextricably linked with public safety, um, having these programs um, uh, and amenities. Um, Parks, Rec, and Harbor generates over a million dollars in revenue, um, which, as I said, goes to the general fund. And the cost recovery is extraordinary. It's double the national average. 23% is the national average. And the cost recovery from parks open space is 46%. Uh, and the Harbor has 96% cost recovery. So, I mean, that, they're almost completely revenue neutral. And so, you know, really taking big steps in that. And I, I just want to say that because in praise of staff, that's really their hard work that makes that happen. Um, that said, Parks and Rec has really endured an annual budget, annual budget cuts since I've been on the commission and still trying to maintain um, you know, their, their key programs. And so what I'm asking for tonight, and this will be talked about more on Thursday, is, is I'm begging you guys to, to maintain or increase the budget to maintain these, these key programs. And as, as I said, this is a part and parcel of as important as public safety, it's a, it goes hand in hand with, with public safety. And, um, and lastly, how has so much been accomplished with so little? And um, you know, I, I spent 15 years in fire service, so this isn't a, a hit against the fire department, but the Parks and Rec, with these 136 amenities, you know, operate on 40% of the fire department budget. It's just extraordinary. I don't know how they do it. And, and I'll, but I, I've been watching for five years, and, and this is how I think it's done. I think they're an incredibly well-managed team, a, a very progressive thinking team. They work so hard. Um, you're so lucky to have them. Um, the city is lucky to have them. Uh, the retention rate is incredible. Compared to Parks and Rec um, departments around the country, we keep people. They want to be here. They care. It's personal for them, and, and the commitment to the community is great. And uh, I loved the, the um, 
um, the Jet Setter uh, magazine <laughs> calling Eureka the, the number two coolest small town in the USA. And I'm going to go out on a limb and I say uh, it's partly because uh, we have the number one coolest parks, recreation, and harbor department. Questions or, or, or comments? Thanks a lot for that presentation. Uh, you want I to add anything? I just want to say thank you. Craig is cool, and uh, that, and I did, loved what he did. I know it was long and it was late, but it was so good it was worth it, wasn't it? <laughs> thank you, Craig. And, of course, you are welcome to the members of the public are welcome to come to Parks and Rec where they can interface with, with us and city staff in a very intimate way um, relative to this kind of a venue uh, every each month, uh, second Thursday of each month at 6 o'clock at the Adorney Center. All right. Thank you. Questions uh, for, uh, yeah, questions at this point? No questions, but I do have a comment. Right, Natalie. Just have lights back on. I just have a comment, too, so I guess... But okay. do we need to take public no questions right now? All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, we're going to open the item for public uh, comment. Any public? Please step forward. I'm really glad I made it here tonight to see that presentation. Um, once again, I'm Christy Prescott. I'm a homeowner here in Eureka, and I work here and have a family that I'm raising. And I have to say that uh, what Craig was saying, um, well, first of all, the work that the Parks and Rec Department does is truly incredible with their limited resources. I'm just really amazed at how much they get done with the small um, budget that they do have. And, and I think it's a great value to our community. Um, as Craig was saying, uh, it's public safety. Well. I see it as more than public safety. The money that we spend in supporting this program is a direct investment in the civic life of our community and our children, providing them opportunities to get outside. Some kids don't have a good home life, a way to connect with other mentors outside of their home and the larger community. It's really about creating a resilient community and future. And so I see it as, you know, rather than, uh, gosh, I live about a mile away from here, so I deal with a lot of the urban issues that we have in Eureka in my backyard. And so, you know, I rely on our police department, and I'm amazed at <laughs> the incredible work they get done and the limited staff that they have. And I, I really commend them and respect their contribution. I feel like we as a community need to uh, not put all the weight on the police to solve our problems, you know? I mean, once it's become a police problem, we've sort of, um, we're sort of in a bad spot. And so I see our investment and parks and recreation and the programs as a way to take, um, to relieve the burden at the end of the pipe, to create opportunities for kids and families in our community to connect. And so you guys have a really difficult um, task ahead of you, and I thank you for serving as our community voice and representatives. And so I just ask that when you're making budget decisions, please uh, keep that in mind about, you know, um, making decisions based on that vision of what we can be rather than fear of what we are or could be. Thank you. Thank you. Any other? Uh Come and come on up. 
is my first city council meeting, so thank you all. It's been very interesting. Um, and I just was thinking, uh, this is related to Rob's presentation as well as Craig's presentation, um, uh, kind of tying the open spaces, even the closed bathroom and the food trucks. I don't know about that parking lot that's by the boat ramp that's east of the Dorney Center and the amphitheater, and there's that trail there. I, like to go walking out there and that bathroom is never open and that parking lot just seems like sometimes random people are hanging out in vehicles um maybe that could be a good spot for food carts or food trucks to be i don't know and then also there's the um the the hsu rowing ramp there i know that i love kayaking on the bay too and um for people who don't have kayaks, they can rent from Humboats, which is over at Woodley Island, but maybe with the Aquatic Center there and um, the Adorney Center, I don't know. I could see, you know, getting some food, using the bathroom, getting in a kayak, um, using that spot a little bit more, maybe. I don't know. Just thought so. Thanks. Thank you. Any other comments on this item? Okay, we'll close the public comment period and return to council for your, Marion. Thank you, Frank. Um, one of the things that I brought up, and I don't think it gained much traction, and I don't, I'm not sure exactly why, but again, I used to be the liaison to Open Space Parks and Rec, and you know, I felt like I was um, constantly agitating down there. But here's another agitating thing. So um, the, I think it's, um, I don't know what the people are, but out there at Freshwater Farms off of Old Arcata Road, they're doing a thing like they're going to have a sort of a information center or, and then they're going to have trails going off through into the, um, the areas that are uh, the inlets that come all the way from the bay all the way out to there. They're going to have a whole thing. Well, at one point you guys were offered property um, to go ahead and create something just uh, kind of near Alder Bay, kind of behind, well, behind the uh, open, uh, open Door Clinic. And uh, when I heard about that other thing being done, I thought, that's exactly, you got a building there, if we could figure out, you know, what degree of contamination or anything is there, I think that would be a real adjunct to the end of the trail to having, you know, um, that building be repurposed maybe as a, um, some sort of a educational center which it's there, and um, and then the trails and the access to the um, sloughs air. You know, I just I hope that maybe you guys could work with somebody to see if that could still move forward. Because if they can do it over there at Freshwater Farms area, why can't we do it here in town? And then it does co connect some of the trails and that kind of thing. So anyway, so uh, congratulations on the hard work that you guys do. It's definitely a you do an awesome job. Thank you. I wanted to state that I'm, I am interested in hearing more about the Greenways and Gulches Ordinance, particularly if it's so far along in the process. I would like to see us, um, you know, move forward with things that have, 
you know, sustained a lot of community input and people have put a lot of work into. So um, I would be interested in seeing that come back and, and learning more about it because honestly I haven't, I haven't read it and haven't followed that particular issue. Um, unfortunately, I have an HWMA meeting uh, that conflicts with every one of your meetings. So I will probably never be able to come or I, I, would, I would come to that and learn more. So um, maybe we can connect about that. But I also wanted to thank Craig Benson for all of his work on the dog park. I'm um, very aware that he spent a lot of his own time um, making that project come to fruition and, uh, and was the right person to do it. So I'm sure I'm embarrassing you right now, Craig, but thank you very much for, for that um, sort of, you're sort of the unsung hero of the dog park. So I just wanted to publicly state that. Well, I too was one of the council liaisons to uh, your commission, and um, I really miss it. You guys have a lot of fun. You have a lot of fun out there, um, but you do a lot of hard work, and uh, I appreciate all the expertise that you do have on that commission, that it really helps to move things forward. So I just want to uh, say thank you. Thank you for serving as long as you've been serving. And Larry, you must be the default uh, chairperson uh, you can't get away from that, can you? Yeah, that's it. You're the, you're the guy. You do a great job, and um, we appreciate all the work you do, and um, I look forward to um, supporting you and, and working more with uh, your commission. So thanks. Any other comments? Okay. Kim? Well, Craig, I just wanted to thank you for that presentation. And I really wanted to thank you for bringing up this idea, and I don't know if you said it, but you certainly inferred it, of prevention. Um, and that is having these opportunities for folks to do things that are constructive when they're young so that they can grow up and not have all these punitive problems <laughs> that people have today. So I really appreciate you bringing that up, and I really um, I look forward to learning more about your commission, too. Thank you. Any more comments? Okay, back to you, manager. Our final report tonight will be uh, from the police department on body cameras. Well, good evening, Mayor and Council. Uh, Captain Stevens is going to make the presentation uh, shortly as he comes up and we have some things to distribute uh, to you. If you recall last year, uh, right about this time, we had been discussing what to do with body cameras and cameras in the vehicles and we repurposed about $60,000 uh, to move forward with this project. Well, over the year, uh, nationwide, this has become even a bigger um, uh, issue, and there's been a lot of research done and a lot of mistakes made along the ways, and so we are the benefactors of other people's research. And so when we, as we move forward, uh, we'd really like to make sure that we do this in a very thoughtful, uh, careful manner uh, that is consistent with the values of Eureka and the Eureka Police Department, and the men and women who serve in it, as well as the community. So uh, Captain Stevens has been doing a great deal of work on this uh, since he's been promoted, and uh, tonight will be the first presentation. We finally have uh, two cameras to deploy, and we're going to do that here in the next uh, couple weeks to put them out in the field, to take a look at it, uh, test them, and then come back to council ultimately with a recommendation to you uh, to move forward with us uh, spending what is a considerable amount of money uh, on body cameras. So, uh, Captain Stevens, if you'll uh, go ahead and take over. 
Good evening, Mr. Mayor, Council. So I'm going to talk tonight about our body-worn camera uh, evaluation, testing, implementation, and policy, uh, where we're going, where we're at now, and where we hope to be shortly. We've identified two cameras for field testing and evaluations. Uh, one of them is being passed around right now. Uh, the second is on order and will be delivered to us sometime in the month of June so we can begin the process with that camera. These cameras were chosen based on our car camera system we currently have. So it's the same company that's now manufacturing a body-worn camera and also on the industry standard, and that's what you have, the product made by Taser. Evaluating other department policies along with input from the International Associations of Chiefs of Police, the California Police Chiefs Association, and the Police Executive Research Forum. Um, the packet I hand out is just a, an example of seven cameras that a company got together and evaluated for many different things. Uh, you can find those everywhere. There's probably another 14 cameras on the market right now. They're being tested by everybody. Uh, there's no lack of research or information out there. I have a three-ring binder that's overflowing just with articles and things from the good, the bad, and the mistakes people have made. Uh, we're going to be evaluating the cost to initiate and maintain the program. And then also we need to look at body cameras versus vehicle cameras. Uh, the cost to the body cameras is high. The cost of the vehicle cameras are high. Is it worth trying to find money to save both or just go with body cameras and will that meet the requirements that we need as a department? So where are we going? Uh, Body-worn cameras for all our patrol officers and our POP detectives. Uh, body cameras will promote transparency and accountability. They will reduce complaints, resolve officer-involved incidents. Uh, they'll be used to identify and correct internal agency issues, mostly dealing with training and things that will happen on the street. And then evidence documentation for uh, case preparation for the district attorney's office. Things we must consider along the way we're trying to implement this project is privacy considerations, determining when to record and when not to record, do we need consent to record, recording inside private homes, how are we going to store the data, uh, retention of that data, and then how do we release that data to the public upon request? The one thing that's uh, paramount in this whole process is that we have a SALT policy that covers all these issues. So the camera I passed around to you was made by Taser. Uh, the Axon Flex is the one that's got the little camera attached to it. That camera is to be worn on your epaulette, on your uniform. It can be worn on a headband that rides low around your, your ears. It can ride on the side of a hat. Or uh, Taser provides a pair of Oakley glasses with one of the kits. You can wear them on, on your glasses. It also comes in a body camera, just a camera that attaches to your shirt. And that's the other one you have up there. So Taser products are supported by a cloud-based storage system only. They're a proprietary type company. They created the data storage system to go along with their product, and that system's called evidence.com. The camera system that you have, the flex with the camera that attaches to your, usually your head or your epaulette, is about $600 a camera. The mounting system kit's approximately $200 a camera. And then the docking system for the upload to the cloud is about $250 per camera. So you buy the evidence.com product and plans. So the officer safety plan is their premier plan. And for a one-year service of that plan is $1,188. So that's per camera. So 
That's about $48,000 a year after the initial cost of the uh, purchase of the cameras. There are some perks that come along with that program. The cameras are upgraded every 30 months of a five-year contract. So at 30 months and 60 months, you get brand-new cameras from Taser, not the same camera you have. It's the newest camera they have on the shelf at the time. Uh, they're covered, full warranty. Anything breaks on them, they just automatically send you a new camera. The initial cost uh, after the discount for a 40-camera system would be roughly $80,000. And then it would be roughly $48,000 a year for the next four years after that to maintain that system uh, with that program. The next camera we're going to test is the WatchGuard HD Vista. WatchGuard is the company we use for our in-car cameras. It's an HD-type system. Uh, we've had great success with it. Um, this camera is body-worn only, so you see the entire unit as it is on the left. And then it just shows on the right that it does have a, a visual display where you can see battery life, how long you've been recording, other things like that, compared to the Taser that doesn't have any of that information available to you. So WatchGuard is supported by an in-house server storage that's compatible with our current car system. Uh, the Vista HD cameras are approximately $895 per camera and docking station. The initial purchase for these cameras, for 40 cameras, will be approximately $35,800. These cameras are downloaded to an internal server. Um, we have two 1.5 terabyte servers currently in our department for the WatchGuard system, so we have the back end already there. Uh, once we update our purging process of videos, we currently are still storing videos since 2012 when we implemented this process. Uh, so both of those servers, we have about three terabytes of information right now stored. Uh, we're updating our policy on purging, which will allow us to get rid of videos that are no longer needed and set some standard by law and by state law to get rid of those. But if we did need to buy a server or want to start brand new with a brand new server for just the body cameras, it would cost us $15,000. I think uh, given the amount of data we've stored with the cars, I think that server would last us at least two to three years just with body-worn camera video. The HD cameras come with a one-year warranty. Uh, you can ad purchase additional warranties for hardware maintenance at $150 per camera per year. So this system would have about a $6,000 a year upkeep just to make sure if anything broke on the cameras or we needed assistance from the company, they would provide that to us. Uh, the WatchGuard cameras are waterproof, which is kind of important living here on the coast. I know we're in a drought, but I have lived here 16 years, and I've seen it rain nine months out of the year. Um, so being waterproof will increase the longevity of the cameras. Um, they have an adjustable lens, so it doesn't matter how tall you are. The little lens on the front of these cameras rotate up and down, so somebody that's six foot four and wears it above their nameplate can rotate the lens down so you can see somebody that's four foot ten and talk to them. Also allow them to see down into a car when they're doing a traffic stop, and vice versa for somebody that's shorter. WatchGuard system has what's called a record after the fact. So if you get out of the car and some incident happens and you forget to touch the button, it has an internal hard drive server kind of system where it stores so much information. Uh, right after an incident, you can always turn it on. There's about a 45-second buffering time, so it'll catch the 45 seconds before. Uh, and most cameras have a system like that. Taser has 30 seconds of buffering. Uh, but the WatchGuard, you can actually go back probably a half hour to an hour if something happened and actually recover that video because it's being stored on the device. Our car cameras allow us to do that too. Our car cameras will record video until it starts pushing off the hard drive in the car, which could be anywhere between two weeks. So if we had an incident occur and we need to go back and look for video, there's a chance we might actually go back and be able to find some video. 
We will not have no audio associated with that video, but we would have the physical video itself. So addressing our officers' concerns, and this has been a big deal across the country, one thing we need to make sure that the uh, you know, cameras and the implementation of our camera system is a meet and confer issue with our EPOA. So we want to make sure that we have them on board from the get-go as far as policy, as far as the cameras, the styles, how they want to wear them, because we want them to use them and see the benefits of this. So having their cooperation is going to be vital to this project. We need to communicate continuously the camera program goals, the benefits and challenges, along with the agency's expectations. We need to frame the cameras as a tool creating evidence, improving public safety, and not as a check on officer behavior. We need to work together to ensure the program doesn't erode trust between the officers and the administration. We do have an advantage. We already have the in-car cameras. I was here when that was implemented, and I can tell you as an old school officer, it was hard to finally put a camera in my car. But now I can tell you that the majority of the officers at the EPD appreciate having the cameras, and more often they have been saved for complaints because they've actually recorded the incident and been able to see as it happened that the complaint wasn't true. So I don't see us having a huge issue with implementing the cameras and getting the officers on board because they already have the, cars, the cameras in the cars. So our commitment, EPD is committed to ensuring that we have the best product for our officers that fit our needs. EPD is committed to ensuring we involve our officers and others in the implementation process to ensure a smooth transition to the body-worn cameras. We're also committed to having a policy that the community can trust and officers feel is fair given the standards and practices in policing today. And as an agency, we understand the importance of such a tool as a body-worn cameras, and we will lead the way to set an example for the implementation for others to follow. We're not taking this lightly. It's not a knee-jerk reaction for us. Uh, we don't want to have to go back in two years and say we did it wrong and have to come back and say we need to redo this whole project. So by watching other people fail, watching other people's concerns, the issues they're having, I think we are ahead of the curve when it comes to this type of uh, project and implementing it. So if anybody has any questions, we're happy to try to answer them. Okay. Uh, Marion, we'll start with you again. Thank, thank you. Lights, camera, action. Um, um, one of the things uh, I was wondering, uh, you're talking about two different cameras, the watch guard and the taser, right? That is correct. But I'm not seeing them described in here. I see the taser described, but I don't think I see watch guard. The watch guard camera is one of the latest ones to come out. The company it's has spoke. It's not in this. It's not, it wasn't one of those tested. It was, okay, okay. I'm just giving you an example of items or cameras that have been tested and what the All process right. they've gone through. Okay, okay. And then the other thing that I want to know is, is are these mostly intended to be used for internal to the police department use? Is this so people can go and say, hey, you know, um, you got to prove to me that, that such and such happened and I want to see what happened and stuff. Is that, are we going to get into issues? So is it intended for internal? I think the cameras are intended for a, a variety of reasons. One, obviously evidence collection is probably the most vital for us. Um, the officers re recounting things that happened on the street, actually catching evidence that they see during crimes being able to capture witnesses and their true and victims for their true sincerity of the crimes and how it affected them. There will be cases where there will be complaints made on interactions with officers and that will be handled internally as far as having the video to go back and review so that we can do an accurate inve investigation of that complaint to see whether or not it was truthful or not. Were, were you saying that the body-worn cameras c 
could possibly take the place of the car cameras in the beginning? It comes down to cost. It okay. truly does. It's what's, what are we going to be able to afford and what's the um, priority of council and the department? What would be the the differences in like what they, because I would think the car one and traffic stops and that sort of thing would be maybe better, but do, are these cameras, uh, I don't know, good enough to take the place of that? I don't know if they're good enough to take the place of. I've seen videos from Taser where they have the camera on the epaulette and you can actually watch a traffic stop occur, watch the violations, pursuits, other things like that. The body-worn cameras obviously are going to be positioned probably close to the steering wheel, so I don't know how much video you're going to get from that. Um, so I guess it's yeah, we may lose some on the front end of catching things that happen during pursuits or driving, but we'll catch other video that would happen away from the car that we wouldn't catch with the car cameras. So foot pursuits, interactions inside houses, yards, things where we may arrive and not be able to position our car in a manner where we can catch it on video, but yet by having the body cameras, that covers the other half of the incident where we're actually outside the car. They both have a vital function to law enforcement. It just truly comes down to what can we afford and what are we going to be our priority as a department. So the cameras we have now in the cars, will they be good for some years to come or like 60 days or? <laughs> oh, no. The, the cameras we have have been very good so far. Uh, we have several we need to replace that are not on the same system as WatchGuard. So we've gone through a transition of cameras over the years. Uh, the WatchGuard cameras are HD. They download automatically when we come back to the department to a server on a wireless-type system. Uh, WatchGuard hopes to have the body cameras do the same thing. So once you come back into the department eventually, that that will download automatically so there won't be no docking anymore, uh, which will be great for the officers because they won't have to worry about downloading everything at the end of the watch. When they come back to write a report, they'll have a chance for that video to download. Um, so I think the WatchGuard cameras we have will probably last a couple more years but then the other ones we have need to be replaced. So it's either find the funding for those or go away from car cameras and go with body cameras. One more question. Uh, so would this be available for the officer to review uh, at the end, of, like at the end of an uh, incident or something, if they wanted to see how it looked to the camera? That is one of the points of conversation we had daily. Just today, a matter of fact, at coffee, we had that same conversation. There's two trains of thought. One, you can have the officer review the video immediately after the event to write the report based on the video to get an accurate recollection of what happened. Two, and my kind of train of thought is I want my officers involved in critical incidents or use of force incidents to write the report based on their objectiveness on what they saw at the time because that's what they're going to be judged by in court. And then when they're done writing that, have them give them the option of watching the video to go back and make any changes to fill any voids there may be because that way at least we're documenting their their recollection at the time as it occurred, not after watching the video, because that's what they're going to be questioned on and asked about. Thank you. So did you say you're going to be testing um, both these cameras that you just passed around? Yes, we are. And how many again? Uh, we have those two, so we'll test the body camera from Taser and the Flex, the, the remote camera. And then we'll be texting one camera from the watch card system. Okay. So have you got um, a, like a temporary policy in place as to when they're to turn the camera on? Um, you know, those types of issues are going to be addressed during the testing period too? I, we have several policies that we're reviewing, and we'll put together our own policy to give them direction prior to actually the testing process, yes. Okay. And uh, what's my other question? Oh, what does the district attorney think about 
the cameras. Is she in favor of that, or I have not she have had the opinion? chance to speak with uh, DA Fleming yet about it, but I will at the next liaison meeting. I get a chance to, and I'll report back to you. Okay. Um, all right. That was it. Thank you. Yeah. I have a few. Um, so, did you say that the WatchGuard model has no audio at all, or is that just the video inside the car? No, it has very good audio. Okay. It's the uh, buffering time, so the 30 seconds that occurs once you first turn it on, it goes back 30 seconds in time. Okay. Or if we have to go back and collect video in the record after the fact mode, you won't record any audio at that point. And do you have an idea of how long the testing period, uh, you know, that pilot period is going to be with those three? Uh, tester, tester cameras? I don't see it taking any longer than probably 60 days. Okay. Just because I want to give a chance for several different officers to use them in several different environments. Mm -hmm. And then we need to just check the, the back end. How, how does the cloud storage work? Do we even have the bandwidth in the city of Eureka that we need to upload 10 cameras at a time when guys come off duty? And then how does the body cameras from the watch guard work and what's the results? How, how well does it come out for us? And in general, is the policy along the lines of, uh, you know, turning it on every time you're interacting with somebody in law enforcement mode? I don't know what to what to call the kind of incidents, but uh, yeah, yeah. What would that look like, kind of in general? So some of the stuff uh, would be much like our car cameras or enforcement type contacts. So not your general. If I see you on the street, I'm gonna come talk to you. I'm gonna turn my camera on because um, we want people to be comfortable around us. We need that sharing of information from the community to the police. And if they know they're being recorded, we may not get information that may help us in a case because they may not be willing to give it to us. Um, but you're looking at traffic stop, field interviews, detentions, arrest. Um, radio calls, dispatch calls we go to. There will be suspect interviews. There's a whole list of different kind of things, but it mainly has to do with some type of enforcement interaction or an interview based on some type of crime. Okay. And then um, if they're positioned on the epaulette, can they do double duty? Uh, you know, I, I heard you talking about maybe being blocked by the steering wheel, but if they're up here, could that work better? That they will work as a car camera that way. I've seen video. Um, of course, there's going to be some movement, and it's all in what the officer does inside the car on what kind of video you're going to get. If he's sitting perfectly still, looking straight ahead, you may get some good video of the driving. So it, it can serve that purpose. I've seen videos that way. Mm -hmm. It's just going to have to see how well it works, and it won't be perfect. Okay. And then my last one is... Um, you know, I guess I find it interesting that people are increasingly concerned about surveillance, but they want body-worn cameras for transparency, so it's sort of an interesting catch-22 there. But given this community's kind of uh, unique uh, persona or, you know, our, our community makeup, do you get the sense that people really want this by and large, or is it split? What, what is your sense having done this coffee I, stuff? I think the accountability portion of this process will overweigh outweigh any type of concerns they have for privacy. Okay. Um, we're going to put restrictions in place for certain things when it comes to privacy. We can't record and open in a hospital because of patient rights and things like that. So there's going to be a lot of training on our part. And I think as long as we're open to the public, we educate them on what our policy is, we educate them on how we're going to do this, what videos we're going to keep, I, I think they'll be receptive to it. And I think overall it's going to be a positive for not only the police department but the city itself. I did actually have one more. Since uh, the DA isn't here to answer, but our city attorney is and might be able to use this, um, I was just wondering if, if you could comment on whether this would be helpful for your cases you're working on in the future. 
You know, it would depend on the case. Um, you know, we prosecute EMC violations, so it's camping, which could be very helpful, um, just to survey the scene, um, the interactions with the officer, um, how the um, violator, the alleged violators, is responding. Mm -hmm. um, so that could be helpful. Um, in terms of the camping violations, we do ask, and the officers do often provide us with pictures, which are very helpful when we are prosecuting. Um, open containers are another one that we prosecute. That would be helpful. Um, we often ask for pictures of those, again, uh, smoking. You know, anything that you can depict that they're actually violating the law would be very helpful. Thank you. Mary, you have one more? Go ahead. It's just a question about the actual look of the camera. Um, this one looks like the camera part is over here, but it's got the fake look of a camera. Like like the middle is like the lens, but that really isn't. No, that's the on-off button. That's just where you That's you it's it It's so large so that when you go to turn it on and off, you you're can have a glove on or missing it, yes. And so that's the actual camera, the little part The little here. lens that tops the camera. But this one doesn't have any of those features. The little, the dangling? Uh, well, it was like a cigar. The That's the camera, yes. And so this is it's one, just, where would they be putting this? That can go on your epaulette, can go on a headband, attached to a headband that would ride low on your head, to the side of a bill of a hat, to a pair of glasses. So this thing goes like in somebody's pocket? Uh, it will probably go attached on a belt clip, but actually attached to your duty belt to but secure this it. This one doesn't have a clip. No, it doesn't. It just came out of the box today. Okay. I didn't put all the accessories with it. Okay. Just a curious thing. Any other questions? Thank you. Thank you. We'll open the item for uh, public comment. Is anyone here that'd like to comment on the um, agenda item? All right. Seeing no one, we will. Okay. Come on up. very much you're working this lake but I I am gonna bring up this um how come no fire station anybody I was just, I, I expecting in all the fire station motor Avenue they're gonna close so that's way I understand that's tomorrow night uh, tomorrow oh, night's budget meeting four o'clock oh they, I know could I give it to my statement why should they should open I have an incident like three years ago, like August 12, like 1.30. And I, I go bedroom upstairs, I see, you know, sheer gas station, Motor Avenue. And guy bring to that, you know, fire, you know, like a newspaper by Ison, you know. They go running to coming to my house. So I, I, the Motor Avenue, they running. Then I look around back door, they went, he going there outside the tea garden there without the fire they going. I say, <laughs> but I see you know that gas station they they was uh, looking my car, my house you know they looking for my shop on Moro Avenue. Then they got car parked and a lot of people there. That's why I afraid to going out. I don't want to. That was one thirty, but I'm not gonna call police either. I've been calling too much police thing. But they are real spawning me good, but I don't want to call it bothering. That's why. Just I waited, waited, waited. Then after they go bicycle going, like, then after that car left, they go in that side. Then I put on one pocket, you know, I put on pen and pencil. I want to go ride, ride that number. 
Then once I got phone, you know, then I'm going the out. Nobody. Then I say, I go to Moro Avenue. I want to see where they, they, they throw with the fire, you know. I want to see where they throw with. Then I look. They threw the right through my porch. Um, they got fire. They got fire going on, <laughs> flaming it. My front in the Moro Avenue. They got two round, like eight, almost 16 inches. They fired. They got cold. I just kicked them up to that fire. That um, I kicked them up the outside. I called 911. I go get it the water. I put around, put around 911. Then police came. Anyway, I should have called. Then he put, he stepped them up. That thing. He was newspaper. That's what I, I think we need that fire, uh, fire, in a fire station. I really support. You know, I paid the last year. Like my property tax was like over four thousand dollar. I don't mind more donations. Something maybe make it gotta be two-way street. I'm scared. Yeah, I am scared. That's why you know, I see Brown, Brian Gerber, all that they, I, I did it like, they gave me permit to 12 by 20 inch like building, I can build them. But why I stopped that fire stuff, okay. <laughs> okay. Yes, thank you. Well, I can tell you tomorrow night, of, tomorrow night you'll have, be able to talk about that some more. Yeah, because I'm not gonna, if I don't make it, you know, I appreciate, you know, thank you very much. I think we needed that safe, that fire station. All right. Thank Thanks, you. Gail. Any other comments on the agenda item? Okay, we'll close the public comment period and uh, return to council. You've uh, got more questions, comments? Go ahead. Very brief comment. The, I thought that the cost for the body-worn cameras was going to be much greater than that. Um, so. Um, I had, I guess, maybe been looking at um, amounts from police departments that were much larger than ours. <laughs> and so, um, you know, given the cost, I, I definitely am interested in hearing more about it. Um, I realize that we are in a crunch, but, um, you know, it seems uh, possibly worth worth it. So I look forward to hearing more. Any other comments? Okay. Thank you for the report. Anything further, Mr. Manager? Nothing else, Your Honor. We're adjourned.